lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Jeremy Lee in the building and every guest that you ever needed. Sports cards after hours keep the hobby heated. Updates, hobby talk like you never seen it. Sports cards live and none could ever beat it. Sports cards is a lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Welcome to another episode of Sports Cards Live with your host, Jeremy Lee. All right, everybody, welcome to episode number 188 of Sports Cards Live. It's Saturday night, June the 17th, 2023. My name is Jeremy Lee. I would like to thank everybody who joined us last Saturday for what was a very informative and candid episode with Upper Deck President Jason Mashera. Check that out on the YouTube channel. Also, thanks everybody who joined on last Monday for the inaugural episode of MC Mondays Live. We'll be doing that every two weeks, every second Monday. Also, no PWCC hockey episode coverage tomorrow night, the weekly hockey auction, as myself and Josh Madigan from the Gong Show are going to be taking the night off to enjoy Father's Day. We are both fathers, as are many of you. Monday on the channel, never mind that. Tuesday on the channel episode will be episode number five of Taking Stock with Dennis Zender, also streaming to the Sports Card Dad YouTube channel. We don't have a topic yet, but we will have one by then. So check that out as well. The first four episodes have been a lot of fun. Great interaction in the chat. So check those out. I would like to ask everybody to join over 400,000 people now who have downloaded the Center Stage app across both iOS and Android for quick comps and card management features. Their app is the fastest and most accurate at card shows or at home to help price your cards, build, organize, and share your collection with your friends and other collectors to follow using their new social sharing features. They've announced some exciting new partnerships and grading. So check out their Instagram account and join me in supporting the great team and the innovation they are undertaking there. Also, please use protection, everybody. Practice safe swaps. Yeah, safe swaps. Veriswap is an app and middleman service that lets you securely trade cards through the mail. Every transaction up to a million dollars in value is fully insured by their guarantee. To use Veriswap, simply upload your inventory, make trade, partial trade, or full cash offers and negotiate with thousands of traders already on the platform. Check them out on iOS and Android. And as part of a special offer, your first trade is $1. There's a link in the video description here below. Check them out. Shout out to Leighton Sheldon and Just Collect. Leighton will be joining us for the Vintage Spotlight about a half hour into tonight's episode. And be sure to check out hobbynewsdaily.com for your daily dose of hobby news and entertaining content. It is a collaboration of various content creators and original writers. Also, the Tag Grading Discord server is now live. Tag collectors are chatting live, buy, selling, trading, sharing pictures, and talk shop. Connect with hobbyists who like transparent and reproducible grading. If Discord isn't your thing, join the Tag Community page on Facebook. It's another place to stay informed on all things Tag Grading. Go to taggrading.com and the Community tab to join either. You'll also find out first about Tag Grading drops and even, even surprise flash drops. As always, everybody, thank you for your viewership. Thank you for listening on Spotify, Apple, and all other podcast platforms. If you're not yet subscribed, please take a moment and do so. And as always, tonight, your comments, and they're already coming in, and your questions will be in play. So let's get to it. Tonight's guest started in the hobby as a kid in the late 80s and collected through the junk wax era. He came back and got the bug in 2017 for about six months, fell out of it and came back in 2020, got on Instagram about a year and a half ago. His favorite teams are the Portland Trailblazers 
and the New York Mets and the Chicago Bears. And his favorite athletes are Shaquille O'Neal, Mike Trout, Doc Gooden, and Daryl Strawberry. He's originally from Portland, Oregon, and currently hailing from Kirkland, Washington. Let's bring him out. Brent Brent Wire, welcome to Sports Cards Live. And how are you tonight? Jeremy Lee, what's going on, man? I appreciate being on. I, I told you earlier, this is like being on the Tonight Show. So I'm, I'm excited. Let's let's talk. Let's talk. Well, listen, we have been, ch- really, we've been chatting uh, here and there on Instagram for, feels like probably five, six months now. Uh, always planned to get you on. And here we are. We're finally making it happen. So I want to thank you. And and you know what? I, I'll, you know, last week I announced that I was supposed to have Sasha T on tonight. He had to cancel so I'm I'm grateful to you for being able to to come in and fill that spot. But honestly, we we're going to get you on no matter what anyway. So um, I don't want you to I don't want you or anyone to think that you know you're filling in because this is this is your episode. Hey, no. I'll I'll be I'll be a fill in. That's fine. I'll, I'll well, take it. Yeah, well, it, it's it's good to have you, Brent. I mean, you you do a lot of posting on Instagram. You've got a lot of takes. You approach the hobby in a me- me- methodical manner. And, uh, and I wanted to get into it with you. I think you've got, you've got some interesting things to say. And I, you know, one of the things that I like to do is, you know, through this, through the sports cards live platform, not that you need me to do it because you have your own platform as well on Instagram and Twitter, but expose at least the, the sports cards live audience to other ways of seeing things, whether it's my way or the guest way, or really people in the chat, it's a good opportunity to do that. And the more, the more ideas that we can hear and talk about that aren't our own, I think the, the more open-minded we become. And maybe we are exposed to something that makes a lot of sense, and then we can adopt that as a, into our own ways that we look at things. So we're going to get to the comments and say hi to everybody. Before we do, why don't you take us quickly through your hobby history? I mentioned you started out back in the, in the 80s, but why don't you take us through in your own words? Yeah, started in the 80s, you know, grew up during the junk wax era. Little did I know at the time that that was the junk wax era. Um, actually when I was a kid, I had a little table set up in the cul-de-sac and I would buy and sell cards. Even back then I'd put them in a penny sleeve. I, you know, they're a few bucks each. I'd sell cards, at, uh, garage sales, even, uh, do whatever I could to get the cards that I was interested in back then, you know, it was 89 Griffey. It, it's, it's the whole cliche story around the, the kid that grew up in the junk wax era. And then in 2017, my son was around five. And I just got the bug. I saw it at Target. I saw some optic football. I actually opened up some uh, Pat Mahomes rated rookies, you know, had no idea that was even worth anything at the time, um, which was pretty cool. And then I just kind of lost track of it for a few months and then got back into it in 2020 and then really got in, you know, on Twitter, on Instagram and started diving more in. And then that's just led me down that that hole that I'm sure a lot of people watching right now have been going down for the last several years. And you really do, you said you, you dove back in, but you really do like a deep dive into the data and the trends and the history and, mm-hmm. and all that. And we'll, we'll get we'll get to that really shortly. Just want to say hello to the people who have joined us. We have Jake Dahl. What is going on? Baz, baseball card, curmudgeon. Carlos is here. What's going on, Carlos? Sports card market operates based on confirmation bias. Keep that in mind, Brent, as we move forward tonight. What is going mm-hmm. on to the basketball card nerd? Great podcast. Check out. The basketball card nerd channel everybody uh we got 1956 tops guy in the house also operates on hype yeah no doubt good evening peterborough sports cards mike from eastridge is here vintage what's going on um we'll see if he'll reschedule i haven't uh, been able to do that yet daniel get to see you jeff collector's dream who i now know whose name is orlando orlando 
Uh, good to see you. Dennis Zender in the house. What's going on, Dennis? Valentina in the house. Hodges. Stukes is here. Vintage. Jeff Hart. Good to see you, buddy. Mike Double V. Viewing live again for the first time in two months. Well, it's nice to have you back, Mike. Definitely nice. Teapot. Oh, you'll be listening to this later. We'll get to see a teapot. The professor. Looking forward to take the ideas from tonight's show and move them forward into the hobby for consideration of adoption. Well, that's what we're, that we're, we're one step ahead of you here, Professor. We're doing that right now. Perk, what's going on? Daniel says, I laugh when people say cards are down compared to 2021. I know that it is true. However, I agree when Jeremy says, step back and look at the big picture compared to pre-COVID prices. That just makes sense. Latrell Sprewell, what's going on? SSP Joel, Brent is awesome. Has amazing collection. Excited about this episode. I'm glad you are SSP Joel. Welcome and Will S. Yes and no. Okay. We'll leave that one. You guys can talk amongst yourselves in the chat. All right, Brent. So you have a, you do medical device sales. That's your career. And in chatting with you, I I feel like you've sort of said that you use your experience in that to help you navigate the hobby in the way that you are right now. Can you speak to that? Because when I think of medical device sales, like, oh, maybe you can get into sales, but I feel like it's deeper than that. And you've picked up some additional life skills that way and maybe just analytical skills. Can you uh, can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I would say it, it's like what you're saying. It's around, you know, understanding psychology, learning more about the ability to, um, you know, look at analytics, look at data, you know, and it might be surgeons for me in medical device sales. So I might look at surgeons, I might, you know, take a list of a hundred surgeons that might be in my territory. And typically what a lot of reps will do is they'll look at the struggling surgeons and who they can grow and try to sell to. And then I quickly early on learned that, you know, you actually want to target the high growth surgeons, the ones that are doing the best because they'll be more likely to grow even more. And that led me into a lot of the things that I look at around psychology and cards. So we've talked about the Pareto distribution. We've talked about these things where, you know, the, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And so I, you know, and whether it's in medical device sales, whether that's in real estate, whether that's in stocks, cards, you know, you see it everywhere. So taking my background in sales and marketing and psychology and understanding economics has been so much fun bringing that into sports cards. Sometimes I get this conflicted mind where, you know, inside it's there's this, you know, investment side where I'm using, you know, analysis and then there's the collector side. And sometimes there's a little bit of a battle there. Um, so that, that can be difficult and it's becoming more and more difficult as I continue to collect. So, you know, sometimes I might talk about, you know, we, we've discussed this before how, you know, most cards I don't believe will have value down the road. And then I might buy a card that I know that most likely will not have a lot of value down the road because the collector in me just wants to collect it. So when you came back in, in, you know, a year and a half ago or so, were you coming in to invest in sports cards or were you coming in because you love collecting cardboard? When I came back in, it was a mix. You know, I, I got back into it because a lot of, you know, just a lot of discussion around sports cards and how, you know, Michael Jordan PSA 10 was selling for half a million dollars, you know, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars at the time. Um, and I thought there was an opportunity to bring my skill set into this space um, and collect. So I've never been one that says you have to only be a collector or you're only a flipper. I, I believe that you can be all of them. It's, 
it's an identity that we can wear and we can choose which hat to put on from one day to the next. So um, now I'm to the point where I only buy cards that I'm happy to own. And if I do sell them, great. I don't have to sell them and I'm, you know, I'm happy to own them. So I, I definitely, I, I, I'll tell you one thing. I remember the first day I downloaded card bladder and I saw a chart of a card and I just, I was hooked from that point on because it just allowed me to take a look at, I have a lot of experience in stocks. I have a lot of experience in investment world and it just, I'm like, I can look at a card this way and that's okay. And I, I can zoom out, take the emotion out and I can analyze a card and look at a chart historically, even though I wasn't collecting in 2015, 16, 17, I can see where things line up. And that's led me down all kinds of, you know, interesting takes. So when you saw that chart for the first time, because yeah. you came in, uh, you were collecting. You, I always talk about the collector investor continuum, you know, extreme collector here, extreme investor here. And we're all somewhere in between. I think very few people are on either end, but some are. Mm-hmm. When when you when you saw that chart, did it push you further down towards the investor side of that continuum? Yes. Yeah, it definitely pushed me down there. I remember I was looking at, at the time, uh, a base Tim Duncan rookie card. And I think, it, you know, the chart showed that it had peaked around seven or 800 bucks and it was down around $150. And I remember thinking, okay, everybody's now in agreement that base cards are dead and base cards suck. And I can look at a chart and see that. So I can match what I'm feeling on say Twitter, Instagram, and this whole groundswell of, you know, sheep mentality around all believing the same thing, base cards suck. And I can see on the chart, okay, well, that's already priced in. I'm like, this is, this is amazing. I can actually see that. And so now I see the, the reverse. I see the opposite in different areas of cards where I feel the hype. I feel everybody talking about specific cards. I can look at charts and zoom out and see, okay, that's a lot of emotional buying there. There's a lot of, you know, perceived safety in these cards and you can see it in the charts and, you know, that doesn't not make me a collector. You know, I can be a collector and still want to use my skill set from the past and the investment world and apply that to help me collect. It's more fun for me to collect when I think I'm getting a card that will also have great investment down the road. Will you buy a card that you think might be a good investment if you do not enjoy looking at it, if you don't like the aesthetics of it? I've tried that. I've tried that with things like sticker autos or, you know, brands of cards that are not the premier brand. Um, you know, an example was I bought a Bowman Sterling Mike Trout because it was a purple number to 10 and it had a sticker auto on it. And I had that thing for about a week and I just, I couldn't stand looking at it. I just didn't want it. And I, I had this epiphany where if I won't own a card in another player, then I shouldn't buy that card. So just because it was Mike Trout and I was really stretching, thinking like, okay, I, I wanted that card and I wouldn't own a Bowman Sterling sticker auto of anybody else. So why do I own this Mike Trout? And aesthetically, I, I just couldn't handle it. So it could be psychologically, you know, like I know Bowman Sterling isn't the premier brand. I know sticker autos aren't loved by everybody. So there's a lot of psychology in there that I'm I'm, I'm also susceptible to. Uh, but yeah, I had I couldn't keep it. I think you, you, you just dropped a nugget there that I think a lot of people, I hope people like heard that and, and it kind of res- resonated with me. If, if I wouldn't buy this card of, 
of another player. I shouldn't buy it at a player that I might be looking to invest in or or of a an all, even an all-time great if you don't like if you don't love the card for what it is for its specific uh crate, you know, it, it's the various factors that make it up, whether it's a patch or an autograph or a, just the design overall. I think that was a that was a, a nice nugget you dropped there. So thank you for that one uh for sure. Uh, okay, a couple more comments here, and then we're gonna. I want to get into psychology, human behavior, Pareto principle, which you talk a lot about. Uh, Kamikaze says, "Never trust a person who has three different favorite teams from three different cities." Yeah. Very quickly, what, what's behind? What is behind that? So I grew up in Oregon, and all we had was the Blazers. And so you know, the Chicago Bears won the Super Bowl, became a big Bears fan. The Mets with Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry were all the rage in the eighties and became a big Mets fan. And I had no teams to choose from in Oregon and the Seahawks were terrible. So simple as that. Daniel here says, I know what you're saying. I focus on hall of fame players and I can say for myself, every single one of my hall of fame rookies is up compared to 2019 and earlier. And I've been saying this for months now, maybe even longer. If you just, if we just delete the pandemic. I used to say just delete Q1 of 2021 even. But if you delete a couple, you know, maybe there's maybe it's now four or five or six quarters even. Uh, we're still tr- we're still on that same trajectory that we were on before. Will we continue? I don't know. I used to think that the floor is permanently higher. Maybe I'll be proven wrong. Uh, we'll see how much how much further things overall might drop. Will says Brent gets it. Cards are just another mirror to human behavior and markets, which is a a nice comment right there. Chris, just remember the card market makes no sense, which I want to get your thoughts on that, Brent. Because uh, that's a that's an extreme, like, and not nothing against Chris J here, but that's an extreme comment. Like, it, yeah. I don't know that it makes no sense, but it might make very little sense. What are your, how do you respond to that? Well, it reminds me when I have a take and somebody says how horribly wrong I am, or they're just so vague and big picture about it and not specific. And I have a really hard time understanding comments unless they're very specific. So when you say the card market makes no sense, it's like, you got to be more specific than that. I I don't know what that means. Fair enough. Fair enough. Stuke says, great point, Brent. Own cards that you are happy to own. And that's so important. That's something that even if you're just in this to invest, uh, you know, it, you know, we, we like to say if if everything goes to zero, you want to at least have something that you're not going to hate looking at, something that you're going to enjoy owning. Although it depends how much you have in it. It might not matter how nice it is. You still might be you might have resentment towards them if that happens. But I don't think we're going to zero anytime soon. At least Daniel says, I always buy what I like too. when and if my cards go up in value. That's just an added bonus. And a lot of people do take that approach. Uh, the professor, what chart did Brent use for his Tim Duncan example? Do you uh, do you know what, what that was? Uh, I was just looking at an all-time chart on card ladder of Tim Duncan's base rookie card at the time. It was when I first got in and downloaded the card ladder app. And it was the, as they say, the big middle finger, you know, had gone significantly up and it was almost all the way back down. And then I noticed, you know, psychologically speaking, everybody was in agreement that base cards were dead but you could see it on the charts. I, I didn't need to hear that from people. I already knew it from the charts that it was all priced in. So a lot of times when I talk about cards or if I talk about what's going on with a card, you know, a lot of this stuff is priced in. So, you know, it, talking about cards from an investment perspective versus a collector perspective, sometimes I need to be a little bit better about clarifying how I'm speaking to it. 
there. All right, Professor. Uh, sorry, we did that one. Uh, I want to say hi to Mark Santucci. Welcome back from vacation. And Will S says human behavior human behavior is chaotic, but there is some order to the chaos. Right on. Uh, Rod Jameson, the big difference between stocks and cards is emotion plays a bigger role in cards, and that adds great FOMO. Mm. I think the biggest difference is actually nostalgia, which maybe is what you're saying, Rod. Maybe there's a maybe there's a sort of a a relationship there, and I think there is between emotion and nostalgia. But I think I think nostalgia is the biggest difference for me between the two in terms of how the markets work. I could be way off on that, but those are my thoughts. Jeff Hart says, definitely agree with the new floor theory. There were very many important cards that were undervalued and the current market matured. And then Carlos, I collect hockey because I love the I love the purest white man sport. No racist. I studied anthropology. And hockey is the coolest game on earth. What I enjoy is the high skill, quick decision making. Now, I, I, I do like that, that aspect of it as well. Valentina says, markets can behave irrational longer than one can remain solvent. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's get into the Pareto principle because you talk, you're all about psychology. You're all about human behavior. The Pareto principle, what does it mean to you and how does it apply to the hobby? Well, it's, it's, you know, a lot of people will understand it as the 80-20 rule. That's like the most simplest form of it. But even within the 80-20 rule, there's a Pareto within that Pareto. So, for example, um, you know, the eight richest people in the world have as much wealth as the bottom three billion people of this world. So it's not 80-20. It's significantly worse than that. And it that is completely normal in any creative space, whether it's art, whether it's book authors, movie producers. You will notice that fewer and fewer and fewer of these people produce all of the work. Um, and th the same could be said for, say, art. So very few pieces of art own, have all the value and most art is worthless. And that is normal in any creative space. So, you know, take, you know, live streaming sports card podcasts. Very few of you guys will command all of the all of the viewership and most people will have very little. That's just the way the world works. And I started applying that into sports cards thinking, wow, so it's not just so say Tom Brady. Tom Brady's in the Pareto for, you know, NFL football players. He's one of the very few players that's won most of the Super Bowls. But even within Brady's card market, there's a Pareto within the Pareto of his card market. So that doesn't just mean go buy Bowman Chrome Tom Brady. So I started realizing like, wow, so even within Tom Brady, there's a Pareto in there. A very few of Tom Brady's cards are going to command all of the value and value is going to continue to consolidate into fewer and fewer and fewer items over time. So, and once I started really like letting that sink in as a collector, it started to really narrow down the, the types of cards I buy. And so I started realizing it's not just identifying the player, it's also the card of that player too. So that led me down to realizing, gee, most cards will be worth nothing. And, and that's okay for collectors, right? Like if you're a collector and you just want to buy a card to own it, that's fine. But once I realized 99.9% .9 of cards will have no value eventually, it just completely changed the way I collected. And then, you know, you talk about, and this, the using the term Pareto is something that I've never really done before uh, on the show. So I'm going to use it tonight because it's, it's, yeah. it's the, the language that we're using, but so the, 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 
Tom Brady is 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 the Pareto being he's the in the 80-20 rule, he's the 20, even even though he's more like the one, let's say. But 80-20 is what people understand. Within Tom Brady, there's very there's thousands of cards. The 80-20 rule would say 20% of the Pareto rule or principle would say 20% of them are gonna be hold all the value. But even within those 20% of cards or 5% or 1%, now you can even you can even refine it further based on the grade and the condition. Can you not like, can, is there a Pareto within a Pareto within a Pareto when you get down to the condition? Yes, a- absolutely. There, there's always another Pareto, which is fascinating. So you look at, you know, a Mickey Mantle, 52 tops, right? So you can keep narrowing down that value to the three PSA 10s. And those three PSA 10s will continue to gobble up more of the value over time. And that is completely normal. And the lower grade, higher pop, you know, vintage cards will continue to go down over time as the higher grade, lower pop cards take up all of the resources. And that's just the way the world works. So if you want to know what the most expensive art will be in 100 years, it's what the most expensive art is now. (laughs) But it's as easy as that. And just to clarify for the chat, we're saying Pareto, P. A R E T O, not burrito that you would get at, yeah. at, a, at a Mexican <laughs> restaurant. We're talking burrito, the principle. You can, uh, of course, Google it. I believe it's on the thumbnail of this episode as well. So, and I, I've thought about this a lot since I've since I've really found your 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 your, your uh, Instagram channel, your Instagram page, and and looked at some of your your takes. And then I think to myself, well, that really sucks. I mean, if if only the finest cards are going to have any value down the road, then what are we doing collecting? So I wanted to challenge you here and say, okay, if only the PSA 10 mantles and the PSA 952 tops mantles, and if only Mantle and Brady and Gretzky and Jordan and you know the other the few other goats in the sports are going to be worth anything, um, according to the Pareto principle, how do you explain that? Well, there is good money being spent on non-Tom Brady's, non-Gem Mint cards. There is, and when I say good money, I mean, it's it's always happened this way. So, and I know you, you know, how do you sort of, um, how, how do you, how do you just balance that out? How, how do you, what do you say to that? Yeah, it's almost a game within a game. So there, there's the game of collecting and buying and uh, speculating on player performance within a season. Um, there's the game of buying cards and selling before season. For example, right now, I my stress level is very low because I don't own a lot of football cards and I don't own a lot of speculative quarterbacks anymore. And I'm kind of out of that game. But right now, you know, there's a whole game around selling. I don't even, I, I don't even know who some of the guys are anymore um, that are, you know, first year, first, first year quarterbacks that are you know, three and $5,000, but there's that game and that's okay. And that's going on. But as long as those people understand, you know, if if you're buying a rookie quarterback right now and you're spending $7,000 on a contender's auto of that player, just know that more than likely that card will eventually become worth zero or close to zero. And as long as you're aware of that and you know that more than likely that card will be worth next to nothing eventually, that's fine. And you play that game. Um, but I think a lot of people have blinders on and don't realize that 
very few of these cards will ever hold value down the road. But if you're aware of that, that's almost kind of a cheat code. And you can play any game you want within this industry and have fun with it. Just know, hey, the reality is, is this guy going to be in the Pareto? And is this card within the Pareto of that player? You know, so is this, I mean, look at a, the, the industry's changed a lot. So if you look at the, the 52 tops PSA 10, I love the Marshall Fogel story where he talks about when he bought that card in 1996. So one thing stood out to me, that was 44 years after Mantle's 52 tops came out. That was not exactly prospecting. And he spent $125,000 on one of the best cards in the world, which is the equivalent of $250,000 today. There's Justin Herbert RPAs that have gone for that. So there's different games going on right now. I want to, like, if, if I'm going to look at it from an investment side, I'm going to really hang my laurels on the lineage. And the lineage tells me that eventually these things will all come together. There's lots there. And, uh, you know, so many thoughts, I'm sure, going through the, the people, the audience's mind and, and my own. You know, when, one thing I will say that I do agree with is that when, when you say like 99% of cards are going to be worth nothing down the road, I think that's true because there's so many more commons produced than there are, uh, you know, short printed cards of players who are really important. There's so many no names in the hobby. So many, oh, we don't have no names is harsh. Commons, they're just players who are common, common players. There's so many of those produced and they aren't, they're not, they're worth nothing out of the pack. They're going to be worth nothing down the road. There's so many cards that you can't even, people won't even pay the shipping on them, never mind uh, for the card itself. So I don't think, I, I don't think you're wrong about that piece of it. But to say that like everything is going to go down to almost next to nothing, not everything, but most cards are going to, like what about, let me just throw a couple examples out there. So uh, Nolan Ryan, 69, 68 tops rookie card. Uh, shared with Jerry Kuzman, obviously, in 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 uh, near mint condition, graded by whichever grading company. You know, there's there's. Do you feel that there will be a time when people, and I mean within the next say 25 years, where people won't want that card? So if you have one and you're going to try and sell it, you're going to get very little for it compared to what you what it's worth today. Well, I would say Nolan Ryan is in the Pareto distribution. Right. So he's one of the all time greats. So he's already part of that point one of a fraction of one percent. So, you know, one. Where one does, sorry, let me just sorry to interrupt you, Brent. Where do you cut it off? Like the top top three players, 10 players, 20 in, in, by sport. How many players do you feel by your gut are in that Pareto? That, that's a difficult question. So I look at it like art. So I don't really have a cutoff point. So if somebody has established themselves there currently today, then they will more than likely still be there down the road and increase in value. I, I would say that a Nolan Ryan card, for example, if it has significant value today, and that is a guy that's already established himself in that Pareto distribution. And if that card has significant value today, that means that that card is also I would argue that that card will only increase in value over time, while everybody that is not Nolan Ryan that falls very short of him and all of those other cards fall away. So Nolan Ryan is in that top fraction of 1%. 1% of baseball players make it to the Hall of Fame. And then 
So out of that 1%, most of them are not collectible. So Nolan Ryan is already in the Pareto of the Pareto. So I would say good luck to everybody else that's buying pitchers, say, today, that think that they will have value. Nolan Ryan will continue to increase in value over time, or at least he should, as art would or as real estate would or any other creative space where you've already established that. You know, So Nolan Ryan is a gr great example. Um, I, I think about this because, like I was saying, 1% of players make it to the Hall of Fame. You can't just collect Hall of Famer. I mean, you can collect Hall of Famers if you want, but you can't. You can't just expect every Hall of Famer to have investment value because there's a Pareto within that. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Like, are all Hall of Famers in the Pareto? And then I think of like Ralph Kiner. I don't think anybody. Uh, I think very few people are collecting Ralph Kiner cards unless you're doing the Hall of Fame run or something like that. So, what can you? Can you narrow, I'm just curious, your, your gut feel, what percentage of Hall of Famers do you think are in the are in this Pareto? So you have to look at it like, say, if there's 100 Hall of Famers, you know, maybe 10 of them will make up half the value. So you have to look at it that way. So that's the way the Pareto works. So if you have 100 Hall of Famers, 10 of them will make up half the value. The value is not distributed evenly. And even within those 10 that make up half that value, one or two of them will make up most of the value of that 10. So that's when you start getting into the, you know, the Michael Jordans of basketball, LeBron James of basketball. That's when you get into the Mickey Mantles of baseball, the Babe Ruths. You know, you're starting, you're just trying to look who's going to be in that. Um, and investing and value will want to continuously look for that and will want to continuously consolidate over time. I think that will happen in cards as people keep realizing there's not another LeBron. There's not another LeBron 2019, 20, 20. Each year, there's not another LeBron and people let that sink in. Value will start continuously going to who is the LeBron, right. you know? So um, that's what happens over time and it takes a while. So, you know, I'm not talking six months or 12 months or the games that can be played within collecting. I'm not talking about buying Sam Howell, and selling him in spring training, you know, and thinking he'd be Tom Brady, eventually that card will be worth next to nothing. I'm, I'm talking long, long-term here. Okay. So uh, Leighton Sheldon has joined us in the background. We're going to bring him on for the vintage spotlight and we're going to, we're going to continue this discussion with Leighton. Uh, but before we do, I just want to mention, I want you to, I'm going to write it down so I don't forget, but I want to, once we're, once Leighton's finished with us, cause he's, he's a vintage guy and I love hearing his takes on vintage and I think he'll, I know you have a question uh, sort of to ask him tonight, um, but I want to make sure we come back and then talk about prospecting. And because from a Pareto perspective, I think about, I can go back in my mind, and I'm, I'm going to use a frame of reference for myself being hockey cards, because those are the athletes I, I know the best in the, for the past 20 years, let's say. And I, you know, I look at years of cards from 2009, 10, 11, 12 13 14 there were there were hot rookies in each of those years and now here we are 10 plus years later and i can maybe think of two from that whole all those years i just said that are still commanding value and i think that's Pareto in play at its finest so let's come back to that because i want to get your thoughts on that let's bring out leighton all right leighton i it's nice to see you are not walking around manhattan tonight you are in the comfort of your own home, it looks like. We'll be able to hear you. 
How are you tonight? And please meet uh, Brent Wire, Leighton Sheldon. Hey, Brent. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too, man. So, uh, Leighton, I, you've you've caught a bit about what we've been talking about. I'm not sure if you're watching before, but uh, Brent I has some 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 perspectives on investing in the hobby. He's a collector investor, but uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to go straight to Brent and Brent. Uh, because I did say, you know, please have something task late. And I want to get him involved in this discussion when he pops in. And uh, so go ahead. What, what what did you have for him? Yeah, Leighton, I thought you're a great person to ask this, you know, being somebody that's collected vintage for a long time. Um, what are your thoughts on the perceived safety in vintage right now? I mean, it's a very broad question because there's so much right? There's different sports, there's different decades. And um, I was listening for a few minutes, uh, you know, before I hopped on tonight, meaning not just when I was in the background. Um, and I mean, I think you have to be careful. You know, I heard uh, some of what you were saying, Brennan, as I was kind of sitting in Jeremy's green room. Um, you know, listen, during the, the run-up of the last several years, and I know things are down now across the board for modern and vintage, um, I guess what I'll start is be careful, for example, if you think that buying someone's rookie or just like their second year or a key card of a Hall of Famer means that you're going to have safety. Because I don't believe that's true. You know, you, you were talking some very technical terms here, Brett and Jeremy, uh, before I came on. Um, but as far as the way that I feel about it, right, there, there's different you know levels. There's different classes of the folks that are in the Hall of Fame. Um, in some cases, I actually think that I was writing down a few names of, of players across, you know, major sports that even though they're not in the hall of fame and obviously it's like headlined by Pete Rose, but I mean, think about some of the players that are not in the hall of fame, they're highly collectible. So um, I think you're best off when you're talking about where's the safety and vintage. I, I mean, I know it probably sounds like a broken record, but collect what you love and take a step back. If someone's telling you I'm making this up, Johnny bench is undervalued. Right, his rookie's undervalued because he's the best catcher. It's not Yogi. It's not this person. It's not Campanella. And maybe they're right. But let's be honest. Like catchers aren't selling the way he's talking about pitchers, Brent. They're not selling for what an outfielder or first baseman might sell for. That's a slugger. Um, so I think when it comes to safety with vintage, just like anything else, you know, be careful. Um, and if things have run up a lot, just make sure. That if you're, you know, going to get into this card or or a few cards, that you're comfortable that it might go down. Yeah, fair response. Any follow up, Brent? No, I I uh, I just noticed that you know, psychologically speaking, it feels almost like stocks and bonds. You know, where when the stock market crashes, people run to bonds for safety. I'm noticing a lot of people over the last year, year and a half, have really run to low grade vintage. Um, you know, PSA twos, threes, fours, et cetera, of, you know, Babe Ruth, Mays, you name it. They're all up five, six, seven X 2019 prices. Um, and people tell me all the time, I, it's the only place I feel safe. And when I hear people say they feel safe somewhere, that actually concerns me. Leighton, you know, you've, you've been doing, you've been a vintage treasure hunter dealer for a long time now, well-respected in the hobby. Have you have you seen over time a decrease? Like if you and I'm thinking Pareto here, and you know the 80-20 rule, 
you've got a hundred hall of famers, let's say, and maybe 20 years ago, all 100 of them, I know the, that number goes up, were being, were being collected by your clients and there was demand for them. As the last, say, 20 years have gone by, have you noticed that some of, some of those Hall of Famers have fallen out of favor and are no longer being, you're not getting asked for them as much? Or are you finding that Hall of Famers across the board are still, like if Ralph Kiner, I don't know why I pick on Ralph Kiner. Maybe because <laughs> I used to have his rookie card and I, I moved it because I didn't really care about Ralph Kiner. No offense to him or his family. I'm sure he was a great ball player, but I have no, no nostalgia attached to him. Anyway, were the amount of people requesting players like that 20 years ago, was it higher then than it is, than it is today? I don't personally think so. And I'll, and I'll, I, I obviously it's the first time I'm hearing the question, but I'll just tell you what comes to mind immediately. I think the re, I think it's no. And I think the reason it's no is because prices have gone up so much on other players in that upper tier, in that upper echelon. So, you know, Ruth cards, think about it. People who used to collect Ruth that couldn't afford a high-grade Gaudi would buy a low-grade Gaudi. But then a low-grade Gaudi cost $5,000. So now those people are buying Chanelas. I hate that card. It doesn't mean it's a bad card, but it's so obvious that you're talking about being safe, Brent. They're like, oh, I should buy Babe Ruth because it's safe. I'm like, but that card's garbage. And, I mean, listen, we could spend a whole, you know, I feel bad for anyone who has it because, you know, I have that card, so I don't want to, you know, make it seem like I'm trying to make other people's cards go down. But, I mean, to me, I feel like sometimes, and Brent, tell me what you think. Sometimes people feel, collectors feel, investors feel that you're going to be left out. And so you therefore move to like a less desirable card of a player. I'm not always convinced that's the way to go. I absolutely um, believe that's happening. I, I believe that's happening in low-grade vintage especially. It, it reminds me of, say, in real estate. When the real estate market's hot, you know, you'll buy the, you'll buy the house next door to the school or on the busy street that you might not have bought when the real estate market wasn't hot. Right. Um, you know, so you might buy that PSA two, even though it's up five X from before knowing that that's not, that's, that's not the card you should be chasing um, because of exactly what you're saying. I, I believe that there's an emotional aspect to the buying that I'm sensing. So Brent, I mean, you are, you believe, and we'll get to this later. It's one of your unpopular takes you've had on Instagram that low grade vintage is in a bubble, but I want to throw a twist at you here with that. And I want Layton's opinion on it as well. Strong, low grade vintage. So, you know, a PSA two or a three or a two and a half or a three and a half. And I won't even go to four because four can be mid grade on a lot of valuable vintage, but it, you know, there, there's such a wide, uh, there's a broad spectrum of conditions that can be a two or a two and a half or a three and a three and a half, even a one and one and a half, even an authentic. But anyway, you get the point. Such a broad spectrum of, of the way a card looks that you're going to have very weak for the grade and you're going to have very strong for the grade and everywhere in between. So Brent, your comments first on very strong for the grade. Are th is that in a bubble as well, in your opinion? Or is that the Pareto of the grade. Like, I'll just speak to that, please. And, and then Leighton, I, I'd really like to hear your thoughts based on your, and nothing against you, Brent, but much more extensive experience uh, living in the hobby uh, full time. And I think, Brent, you know what I mean by that. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you know, Leighton's been doing this a lot longer than I have in the vintage side, but 
you know, I, I believe that people are really stretching. They're really reaching for these vintage cards and that they're not as rare and scarce as people think they are. Um, you know, so speaking of the Gaudi Babe Ruth, I believe there's a pop count between the three different variations of 6,000, 7,000 total. Um, so, you know, if you're buying a PSA two, you know, one of my posts, this was from six months ago. I said, now they tell you Ruth is safe and it's a PSA two, the action shot Gaudi and 2019 is $2,600 at the time of my post is 12,500, right? It's got a pop count of 220, six or 700 higher than that. Plus there's multiple other variations, total pop count, six to 7,000. Um, and I, my only point is, like we were talking about earlier, I love looking at charts. I love being able to take the motion out of it and say, okay, I see a chart and I see a huge spike, huge run up. I see my Instagram. I see my Twitter. I feel the emotion of people's collecting what they feel like is safe now. And it's like, okay, my, it's just my alarms go off. I feel like my, my risk management side of me says, okay, I'm in too late now. It's, it's up six times what it was in 2019. Babe Ruth has not done anything since 2019. I know that for a fact. And I know it's a PSA too. And it looks like somebody ran it over with a car, even if it's nice, I, you know, whatever. And then I watched Marshall Fogel. He only collects PSA eights or higher. He's somebody that was in way before the markets were cool, way before they're, you know, everybody wanted vintage. And I just, I love learning from people like that, learning from people that were around 20 years ago, 30 years ago, collecting vintage, because I want to collect what they were collecting when it wasn't super hot, when there wasn't all the emotion in it. And when he was only collecting PSA eights or higher, that tells me that's probably the space to still be in. And even though it's become so expensive, I shouldn't reach for that PSA too, just because I can't afford the eight. Layton, well, please. Yeah, no, I mean, listen, very good points, Brent. I mean, I would say when you're talking about Babe Ruth, right, like in a two to an eight, I mean, no one can really afford an eight. So, you know, one of the wow. things I want to I keep in mind, and Brent, I mean, it sounds like, you know, we could probably go on forever to talk about this in a good way. I mean, it's like super interesting. I think sometimes, especially if you're starting to look at like charts and graphs and get real nerdy about the stuff, which I think is great. Folks have to remember, as you said, Babe Ruth hasn't done anything in a long time. But even if a player has done something recent and they're alive, but obviously in that case, it's not vintage. But my point being is that these aren't companies coming out with earnings. So, you know, there's nothing to really drive it other than the demand. And so you might say like, all right, well, if there's this, you know, false demand because people are migrating from this said modern, you know, tough market to vintage. I, I mean, I think it's like, listen, my father's a CPA. And one of the things I learned, Brent, is that you really can manipulate numbers to tell whatever story you like. And so I think you can see at least where you're coming from on the fact that there's 7,000 Babe Ruths. And I feel like we could probably take the next several minutes for each of us to make our best case. And you could say, that's why it's not a great investment because there's 7,000 of them. And to me, it's mind boggling. I'm like, you understand what you're talking about? That if you fill just a fraction of Yankee Stadium and folks who are spending, let's just say I'm making it up, $400 on average to go to a game for just one game out of 81 for a year, you understand that there's way more demand that's probably pent up for those Babe Ruth cards than there's actually for any of the modern stuff going on. 
And so one of the things I think that Fanatics is going to come in and do, yes, listen, they're very interested in the modern market, but they're no fools. They understand how long the history has been around in all the sports. And I think they're going to educate folks. And listen, you might say, like, why would they do that? Because they can't make money off of Babe Ruth Gowdy, but they can make money off of being the place to give good information to people. And make no mistake, there are plenty of buyers out there, although that they might have started to buy modern because that's what they, they let's say, learned about coming into the, the marketplace. I don't think 7,000 is going to scare someone once they start to do the research and say, all right, if I want to buy a, a high-end diamond quality of a Babe Ruth, well, in actuality, there's a lot less. But just like in diamonds, if I want to own a diamond that's $5,000, well, there's an infinite amount of diamonds that are $5,000. But if you want to own a $50,000 diamond, or a high-grade $500,000 diamond, not talking about for a wedding ring or anything like that, just for investment. Well, that's like a whole other way of looking at it. So are we talking about folks that just want to own a diamond? Or are we folks talking about folks that want to own a high-end diamond? And I think that the market, meaning the hobby or whatever you want to call it, actually has room for all of these. And so I myself think it's a little bit premature and maybe even misleading to tell people and flash stuff on social media that I figured out in my charts that there's 7,000 Babe Ruths, and now that's a problem. Because I think that's, that couldn't be the furthest thing from the truth. But, and I'll give you a chance to respond, Brent. I just wanna throw in that we are also using inaccurate, unreliable data, right? The the You cannot trust, the pop reports are, are inflated. And I used to think they were inflated by, you know, 5%. I think they're inflated, hmm. you know, by a lot more than that. like. 30 maybe 30 maybe 30 35 well, who knows 40. who knows what the who knows what it is but i will tell you you took my underhanded pitch and you hit it really well jeremy because i don't talk about that anymore i let others kind of bring it up and who knows what the number is is it one percent is it 30 percent but i know that the difference between a babe ruth one and a two is thousands of dollars and so does every other collector dealer investor out there so in actuality yes the number is likely less but you got to consider sgc and all that um, and I think this makes for like a really fun discussion because I don't think there's a right or wrong and only time will prove, uh, you know, what the scoop is. But I would say, and I, I'd like to hear what you have to say, Brent, after this, it's important to recognize, though, as I said just a few minutes ago, that these cards aren't companies. So when my Babe Ruth Gowdy four and a half yellow hit an insane stupid price in the last 18 months, I sold it at like $55,000, not because I wanted to. Not because I even necessarily needed $55,000, but I did feel that the level it had reached based on what my what I've seen in my experience, that if I need to buy it back or I want to, maybe I'll be able to do that in a higher grade. And that was my rationale. Not that I thought the sky was falling, but I did think it appreciated a little bit too quickly. And per your point, Brent, maybe the lower grade vintage in some cases is doing that. Um, but I don't think it's going bad. You just need to look at the charts, the graphs, the information, talk to dealers, listen to shows like Jeremy's um, and other really good podcasts and make sure you educate yourself. And, and I, I also, as, as you're speaking Leighton and thinking about Brent's, cause I want to, I want to like find the, I want to, I want to just kind of piece this all together. And I'm thinking when we talk about low grade vintage, and then you talk about the Prito, I almost want to look at the inverse Prito Brent and say, maybe the bottom 20% of low grade, like the ugly fours, the ugly three and a halves and et cetera, all the way down the right, down, down the line. Maybe those will become cards that like 
Nobody's gonna want because why would I want to why would I want an ugly four when I can get a nice two? You know what I mean? Like for the same money, maybe. So Brent, want to give you an opportunity to respond to all this and uh and just yeah, see what you have to say. Yeah, my my points aren't whether there's demand for seven thousand Ruth Gowdies or not. My points are whether there's long-term investment appeal to the 33 Ruth Gowdy. You know, you can fill a stadium with however many people you want and sure people will want the cards. I, I don't disagree with that. Where I disagree is if we're going to talk Pareto within the six or 7,000, there's a Pareto within that. So very few of those are going to command all the value over time. And that value will continue to consolidate. So I would not want to have a two or three or four if I know there's thousands graded better. I, 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 for a long-term perspective on the investment side, I know that out of those six or 7,000, maybe only 20 or 30 of them will command all the value down the road, long-term speaking. And, you know, I, I would be all about trying to upgrade grades. You know, if I had a two or three or four in it, it shot up in value and that could get me into a higher grade. I would want to continue to consolidate into the better, higher grade card because there's a, there's a mentality where people think that I should go for the under underrated, right? The under the undervalued. Maybe there's value in twos, threes, and fours. Sure, there could be short term, but long term, the Pareto will be in, in the works. And long term, the value will find its way to the most valuable few out of those six or seven thousand. Regardless of what you want to believe, it will happen, and very few will have all of the value. So um that that's where my so that's where the six or seven thousand bothers me. It's not that there's not demand. It's like, oh crap, that means gosh, what I, I have to get I have to get a PSA eight or nine to get into that Pareto within that speaking long term, if I want to have that that investment opportunity. Otherwise, I'm just, you know, like I remember the 52 mantle, the SGC 95, Jason from Heritage was on some podcast talking about he was worried it would be a PSA nine and lost in a sea of nines. And I think there's six. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, like, that is the Pareto. He, that's what he's talking about. Like there's six and he's saying lost in a C. People are buying PSA twos that have pops of three and four and 600. Like that's what I'm talking. I'm talking only on the investment, only on what has the most upside long-term. I'm not talking about just collecting what you love. If you love a Babe Ruth then buy it. Awesome. Um, I, I'm just saying I'm looking at it from these different perspectives and it's kind of, that kind of second and third and fourth layer of thinking of this stuff. That's, you know, I, I just love thinking about it. I love, you know, strategizing around it. So Brett may, I just want to make sure I clarify, because I think we're on the same page here. So what you're saying is out of these six or 7,000, you know, Ruth's, you're not suggesting that they're not desirable. You're just saying that the, the store of value or the actual value is going to be in a very small group of them. And so for example, for yourself, and what you've been, you know, looking at as far as the charts and graphs, you feel that the real investment quality cards are the ones that are going to pay the dividends over time. Right. And I, and I feel like that it's like a snowball effect. It will only become more and more and more that way over time. Right. So 
Um, I'm sure if you look at the market cap of a, a 52 tops mantle, the PSA 10s, there's three of them, you know, they probably command a significant portion of the market cap versus the population of mantles out there. Right. That's what I'm saying. So and that's only going to continue to grow over time, you know, so that it, there's no undervalued in this space. Undervalued stays undervalued and overvalued stays overvalued. It gets it just gets more overvalued, actually. Okay. Blayton, anything yeah, else? Yeah, for some reason or another, my internet's been a little bit choppy, but this, this, okay. this discussion is very interesting, and I, I, you know, hopefully it'll be, the internet will come back to you in a second. Um, but I think we agree fully here, because to me, if I had an infinite amount of money, I mean, I know what I would select. I would choose the highest grade, you know, across just a few key pieces. But I think one of the, the points is that it, unless you take fractional ownership and we start to have that discussion about these cards, very few of us are ever going to own these. And I love cards, but we're not going to own these cards. So I think what happens is that, you know, we, we choose the diamonds that we can afford. And a Babe Ruth Gaudi in a three or four, I'm not suggesting that's the best investment on the scale of Babe Ruth Gaudis, but it's still a diamond. So that's why I think it retains its value. And I'm not suggesting it's a good investment, but it seems as though the demand will be there, at least for Ruth Gowdy's. And remember, I'm not, you know, I started the conversation talking about Johnny Bench. I think Johnny Bench is one of the greatest captures of all time. But if you take your money and you put your money into a PSA 10 Johnny Bench, I wouldn't do that. You know, PSA 10 Johnny Bench rookie is going to cost you, I don't even know, I don't have the numbers, 50,000, 150,000, whatever the number is. I would have your head checked before I would do that. I would put my money into other high-end stuff. But I think this is very, you know, very fun discussion, Brett and Jeremy. A lot of fun. When there's lots of comments coming in the chat, I want to bring them on. Leighton, listen, you're welcome to stick around. Usually we do about a 10-minute segment, but this is this is a really good topic. And uh, so if you, you're you welcome to stay, man, if you want. Um, but I know you got things going on. So uh, I mean, I, I would. I would. I told my son I cut it off at 11. He's sitting in the back. And we're actually away for, you know, whole Father's Day weekend kind of thing. Nice. Um, so, yeah, you know, I'll hang around for another minute or two. I really appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, of course, it's a pleasure to be here. And it's really, it's a lot of fun to talk about. Yeah, it is. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for your support of the channel, Leighton. And I want to let everybody know, you know, follow Leighton, Just Collect Vintage Breaks. at. Le you can see it on the ticker right now at Leighton underscore Sheldon, Just underscore Collect. And listen to his podcast, Trading Card Therapy, as well. Okay, Leighton, I'm going to go to some comments that are coming in here. And uh, again, jump off whenever you want or stick around as long as, long as you can. And I also want to say to the chat, guys, um, you know, happy everybody is here, of course, as always. Uh, you don't have to agree with everything that's being said here, but you do need to, to please respect respect the guest of the show. And I think, uh, I think the Pareto principle says that 99% uh, of my chat does that. Uh, but the 1% of you that might not, uh, please, uh, please switch that behavior uh, right away. Thank you. Okay. So let's go to a couple of comments that have come in. I'm going to run through a couple. Uh, 1956 Tops guy says, it's not an all or none proposition. It's a continuum. And I agree with that comment that, you know, it's not like only the best are going to have, have value. The value will, I, I believe, based on 40 years experience, diminish but not go to zero unless people stop caring about or forget about those players in the, I want to say in the Pareto, but even the, the level below the Pareto, you know, like, like that secondary 
level Hall of Famer. Those are just my, because, and I don't think Brent is saying those are all going to go to zero. I think he's just saying the investment, the investment potential is better in the highest, uh, in, in the, what we'll just refer to as, as the burrito. And I know the chat is having a lot of fun calling it the burrito, but uh, with no respect to uh, the, the Mr. or Mrs. Burrito who came up with, with the term. Uh, okay, I want to go up to some that came in a bit. First of all, hello to you, Rage. Great to see you as always. James here made the comment a while ago now. Brent, he said, if you're looking for value and money, if time is on your side, the S&P 500 doesn't lose money. Why buy cards? But then Will X says, well, come on, James. Uh, this is this is fun. That is more for serious investing. And I, I believe that I, I'm, I'm right on with that. I mean, I understand James' comment, but listen, sports cards are more fun. But Brent, what's your take on that? Like, you know, why aren't you just dealing with with um, with stocks that have that might pay a dividend that report to shareholders and everything that even though what Leighton was was uh, alluding to before? Well, I will definitely agree. They are a lot more fun. Uh, they are tangible. And I feel like I have more control over what's going on with them. There's nothing wrong with, I don't even, I don't compare cards to stocks as far as in the investment perspective in that way. I use them both as, they're both markets, right? This is an industry with a market and I can evaluate markets. I can evaluate the tulip mania. If I can evaluate tulips, I can evaluate cards and I can evaluate stocks. Um, but I, I would own stocks and they go up or down 30%, 40% and a quarter. And I have no idea why I could read all the headlines. And not, I would always just feel like I didn't really understand why my stocks were going up or down. I, I just had no idea. The earnings could be amazing and it would go down. The earnings could be terrible and it would go up. Um, I just always felt like other people had more information than I did. I always felt like the insiders were always the ones making the money on the stocks and I wasn't. Um, and it's things like this, like, to me, this is a piece of art. Like I can hold this. I can look at this. I can, I can evaluate it. I can understand the markets for it. And this is my tangible asset. Um, with a stock, it's, you know, a, a three or four letters on a screen. And I feel like only the insiders working in that corporate office really know what's going on. And I don't know why it's going up or down. It's just not as fun for me, but I have stocks. But I just look at that as a whole different, that's a, a thing I try not to manage anymore. This I'm, I manage and I'm hands-on. I, I gave up on actually thinking I could outsmart the stock market. And I probably can't just do it. So I'm giving it a try though. Appreciate it. Uh, Leighton, I keep muting you because there's some weird sound coming from your from your connection right now. Yeah. I'm going to take off, guys, because it's something's going on with my internet. Thanks for having me. Brent, it was a pleasure meeting you. I really uh, yeah. enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. Thanks, Leighton. All right. C continuing on. Uh, Rage made this comment here. The 100% Pareto is hype today, period. I think I know what you mean. I think you're just kind of saying that we're hyping the Pareto here. Uh, 1956 Tops guy. I feel like this investment approach to the hobby is the thief of my joy, but it isn't. It And this is Matthew who was on the show a few months ago, but it really should. Don't, don't let it be, right? We have... It's like you have the option every day when you wake up. You want to be in a good mood or a bad mood. Hopefully, you can you can manage that. And I think we can we can decide if we want to or not. Uh, have that kind of rob us of our joy. Uh, Will here says speculating on nobody 
rookie card quarterbacks, basically like a penny stock, Trout Brady, et cetera, like a mature large cap company. And this is back to what I wanted to come back to, uh, Brent, before Leighton joined, which was what I was saying earlier. You know, if you look at the rookie classes of cert- within any sport, really, you can find a five-year period, I'm sure, where there's almost nobody who is, you know, selling for a, like even close to what they were selling for when they came out. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on, like, when you think about your approach and the Pareto principle, how how do you then incorporate prospecting into your theory? Yeah, it's it's really put a damper on prospecting. I I definitely I'm more the way I collect is I wait at the finish line for the winners. Um, I I don't try to predict who the winners are going to be. I I think everybody for fun and like I'll use baseball as an example should open say a box of 2013 Bowman or 15 Bowman and look at the cards that come out of that box and look at their top 100 prospects. Look at the, you know, first Bowman autos that come out of there and you will just be tossing every card to the side and finding nobody that's worth anything in the entire box and laughing at the prospects that are in these boxes. You know, like my son and I opened a case of 2015 Bowman looking for Devers cards. First of all, like I'll repeat that again. There's just one chase card in the whole box now because enough time has gone by I'm sure breakers in 2015, if they're opening 2015 Bowman would have thought there's tons of hits in it. But when you open a box of 2015 Bowman, now you're chasing one guy because the reality is sunk in. So it kind of makes me giggle a little bit when I'm watching breakers now and they think that they're pulling all these hits and it's like, well, open that same box in five years. I think I was on the crossover last night listening to them and somebody was opening some 2006 exquisite. And I just thought to myself how brutal of an experience that would be to open those boxes because the reality of the Pareto is sunk in. And we now know the the truth of everybody in that set. And there's nobody worth anything really. I mean, there's like very, very few, maybe the LeBron, you know, like there's very few cards in there. So you, you can't even lie to yourself when you're opening it with a, the, the delusional hype around this guy could be the next great because you already know they're not. So you're just like seeing these rookies and you're like, Oh boy. So um, it's, it's put a damper on that. I mean, I would speculate on prospects if I were just knowing that I'm playing that game, you know, like this summer baseball's down and there's some prospects out there and you could buy it and sell it in March, say next year. Fine. That's a different game, but if I just want to collect the cards, I'm not buying a Jackson Jackson Cheerio thinking that that will have value in five years. I'm actually the opposite. I'm almost 99.9% sure that that Cheerio card will be worth next to nothing in five years. So that makes it difficult. Because it's going to be tough for him to become the next Mike Trout, for example, just to take a still modern player. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be tough. Yeah. All right, some more comments here. Michael Stone here said, most vintage guys tell you the only pitchers that sell are Ryan and Koufax. And I mean, two great players right there for sure. Justin Wickeiser says, I believe it is driven by the stories people tell, not the performance. I wonder about that too, because I like the comment, but I wonder, you know, don't you have to have performance for people to tell stories about you? I think I think there's, I think there's a, a closer relationship there. And I'm sure 
Justin's a pro. He knows. I'm sure he he recognizes that as well. But uh, thanks for the point, and thank you for the great show comment, Justin. Uh, tip of the mitt says, good evening. I'm getting big into 90s inserts. Still love vintage, though. What are your thoughts? Uh, what are your thoughts on 90s inserts, Brent? Um, you know, the, I would say the charts on a lot of those cards are really scary. Um, you know, if you look at where some of these cards are selling in 2019 versus now, and you look at the chart, and it's just a huge spike. And, you know, I... I posted, uh, I, I printed it out just so I'd remember, but like psychologically speaking, it just made me think of 90s inserts where I said, we are likely to want most what others most want when they most want it. And then I posted charts of the 90, let's see, the 99 Skybox Premium Star Rubies Griffey that went from $1,800 in 2019 to $26,000. So we're talking 1,800 to 26,000. I also posted the PMG Jerry Rice that went from 2,700 to 18,000. So just from 2019. So again, it, re- it I was feeling the excitement around these cards. I was feeling people's perceived safety in these cards. I like these cards. I look at that Jerry Rice. I look at that Griffey. But then I zoom out and I look at the charts and I think, wow, there's a lot of emotion here. You know, like psychologically speaking, there's a lot of running to emotional buying in this space. And that's where I'd be concerned. The other part of this space that I'd be concerned about are the non-Pareto players that are selling for thousands of dollars. You know, guys that are not collectible, but because it's a PMG selling for $5,000. That scares me. Um, I, I know that there's set collectors out there and that's a thing. And it reminds me of the Johnny Moore 86 Fleer. PSA 10 type thing. And if that's what's going on, that's, it's just, that's a, that's a part of it that scares me. Seeing guys that are not like a Rod Strickland, but it's a PMG, you know, like just guys that shouldn't be collectible. They're not in the Pareto. There's no lineage in sports card collecting over a long period of time that supports guys at that level being collectible and desirable. But right now it's almost collecting the card, not the player. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah, the Johnny Moore comment, like no name or common. I don't like no name because these guys all made the bigs, but uh, common player PMG selling for a lot of money. I wonder too about about that kind of stuff because, you know, down the I guess down the road when these sets get broken up, you're now are 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 people who are spending like a lot on the Johnny Moore is such a good example. Are people expecting to get the money out of it down the road when they are done collecting when when they pass on when their estate sells it do they even think that way a lot of people don't even think about what's going to happen when they die they yeah doesn't matter i'm dead i don't need the money anymore but maybe your estate does maybe your family does that sort of thing so but i you know when it comes to set collecting and i'm not talking about putting your binders together every year with your with your tops flagship, your upper deck flagship or whatever. I'm talking about what you're saying, you know, putting together these set registry sets that have, you know, low pop gem mints. And if it weren't for collecting the set, that card wouldn't be worth any, it would be a common, you wouldn't be worth the shipping on it. So I like, you know, and then the other thing is that when you do start to 
wind down your collecting, you're probably going to realize that, wait, why do I have all these commons? Do I need them? So what are your thoughts on set collecting in general? When And, and I want to qualify it by saying, and I think I'm, I'm, it's a loaded question, but what are your thoughts on set collecting in general when the cheapest card in the set is a $5,000 card? Yeah, for me, on the investment perspective, set collecting goes against everything that I believe. So if I believe that very few cards in a set will hold all the value, why would I want the entire set? Like, I, I don't even understand it. So if you look at the 86 Fleer, the Jordan commands most, it commands as much value as the rest of the set combined. So I just want the Jordan. Like if I'm an investor, if I'm a collector, I like, I like collecting and investing. They, they pair well for me. I'm enjoying both of them together. I just want the Jordan. I don't, I don't want all the rest of them. So it feels, it feels a little bit like uh, gamey, you know, like artificial demand. It doesn't feel real. Um, when I see an Eddie Jones PMG sell for four or $5,000, I just, I don't really get it. That's not a game I play in. It doesn't make any sense to me. I long-term historically based on every other perspective and sports cards, that makes no sense. Um, so my gut tells me eventually it will not, it will not make sense again. So um, the other part of the nineties inserts that concerns me is this push from one sport to the other. So if you notice a lot of people are being told what's a grail card, this is a grail Griffey PMG. Wait, PMGs were collected. Baseball collectors collected PMGs in the nineties. That was a big thing. Um, and then I talked to baseball collectors that have been collecting for a long time. They're like, PMGs were not a thing. We haven't heard about them until the last 18 months. So this, this idea of pushing one sports grail into the other one, you know, like football or baseball, that's also an interesting one to pay attention to because you're seeing a lot of the spikes in the charts and those type of cards that, you know, PMGs were big for basketball. And then now all of a sudden it's a football thing and you're seeing, you know, Jerry Rice's go from $2,000 to $20,000. Um, I would just be, I would be hesitant there. I'd, and, and I'm not saying that any of these things are bad cards to buy. I'm not saying don't buy. I'm just saying that my little alarms go off and it, you know, my uh, risk management side of me says, be careful there. Yeah. I want to bring this up. Larry here says the hobby history, Historically, the hobby has been about collecting and completing sets. And I just want to like take this one for you, Brent, because um, that's like, I think it's important to understand, guys, don't misunderstand what Brent is saying. Like he's not telling us, he's, he's not, I don't want to say what he's telling us. He's not suggesting that people shouldn't put together a set. If you, if you want to put together your tops baseball set every year, do it because it's not going to cost you a lot of money and you're going to have a lot of fun and get a lot of that intrinsic nostalgic value for it he is specifically talking about investing in these things and when you're buying your your tops updates or sorry your tops base set every year we know you're not investing that's pure hobby i believe for the most part and brent i don't i'm putting words in your mouth i think i'm right but please tell me if i'm if i'm right or i'm wrong yeah absolutely i'm only talking economics here you know like if you have a, a the set of 52 tops awesome. But what I'm saying is the mantle will command most of the value and that will continue to increase over time. So just give me the mantle. So if you want the whole set, awesome. If that's how you collect, great. All right. Uh, Matthew here said, high eye appeal cards of the greats will always be in demand. The demand is the big side of the equation that doesn't get discussed enough. It's not all about pop reports. I agree with that. Do you, do you Brent? 
So I want, yes. Yeah, so what I want to clarify is <laughs> like when I'm talking about the 33 Gaudi Ruth, I'm not talking about whether there's demand for a 33 Gaudi Ruth. I'm talking about within that 33 Gaudi Ruth, only the very few highest graded, highest eye appeal cards within that six or 7,000 cards will command most of the value and that will grow over time. So those would be the cards that I would want, but I can't afford them right now. So I'm not going to buy a PSA 2 because I know that that's not the card that's in the Pareto within that Ruth. So yes, while there may be demand for that Ruth, I know that the cards that I would want, that I would know that would grow in value over time, that would command and continuously suck up that value over time, I can't afford right now. So I just I just step away and I don't buy them at all. So and so to contrast that and another comment from Matthew here is or you should buy Babe Ruth because he's awesome and you want a physical connection to him. So, so how I do you would, reconcile that? So I would in that case until I look at the charts and see a cards up five to ten X in a couple years. So I, I have no problems with that. And if you know some of these cards came back down to realistic values and I didn't feel like there was people just reaching for them out of safety. That that's where the collector and investment side of me, you know, they have to agree. So there's almost like a board of directors in my mind. And, you know, not everybody's always on the same page, but I, I look at a Ruth. I'm like, that's a cool card. I'm not saying a PSA two Ruth is not a cool card, but when I see a chart and I see a huge spike and then I look at the realities around the card, I'm like, okay, hold on. Let's now may, may not be the best time to buy a, a PSA two Ruth. All right. Jeff Hart says, good example of Preto is a couple different amazing NBA drafts with Hall of Famers, 1996, with Kobe values separating from Nash, Ray Allen, Iverson, et cetera, and 03, with LeBron separating from Wade and Bosch. And like Jordan separating from, <laughs> talk about a rookie class, not that they were all drafted in the same year because you have a few years of rookie cards as long as the hobby considers them to be rookies. Uh, but really, you said, Jordan commands half the value. I think he commands, I don't know, I haven't done the math, but Most my gut tells me he commands yeah. like 80% plus of the value of that set. And can but I comment I, on that comment? Um, he is completely right there. So, you know, you look at LeBron with, say, Wade and Bosch and Carmelo. The tendency for us is to think that Wade, Bosch, and Carmelo are undervalued and that there's value there, which there may be value there. But over time, they will continue to stay <laughs> where the value is. And LeBron will continuously become more and more as a percentage of the value within that set. So the gap will get bigger. Um, it won't actually close. So like your that comments really, you know, saying it well, LeBron will just keep becoming worth more and more and more as in Wade and Bosch and Carmelo will continuously probably slowly either stay steady or decline over time. And that is normal. I guess there's one caveat to that, which is, well, unless he becomes very unpopular in culture because of politics or something like, like that type, you know, things do happen to players mm -hmm. post-retirement. If we knew that LeBron, and he already has some social issues, but if we knew that he was going to be squeaky clean until the day he died, I completely agree with that. But I think there is some risk with some players, you know, we like to say that, well, they're not going to get hurt after retirement. Well, not physically, but other things can happen to that can taint the way they are perceived by the public and the hobby. And we can be turned off by them. You know, OJ Simpson 
as an example of, you know, not that that's what people are doing all the time, but you plan for that. Yeah. That's an extreme, of course. And I'm not saying it's gonna, people are going to go being charged with murder and all that, but you know, things happen that do impact a player's popularity off the court, off the field, off the ice uh, post-retirement. So, but I'm, I think you're just kind of like pushing that off to the side when you're saying about LeBron. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike Petty says, Jackie is in my top 10 burrito. Chris C, Jackie and Koufax are in my burrito. Go Dodgers. Uh, throwback. So many of us love vintage, which is uh, definitely true. Uh, Chris C says, pop reports are the most inaccurate go-to term and source of data for that matter, unfortunately. Vintage says it's not just about pop count. It's about how many are actually available for sale at a given time. Really nice vintage is hard to find relative to pop count. So I completely agree with the comment that the pop count is the population, but then you've got what I've referred to as the float. How many, what percentage of that population is actually available at any given time? I think the problem with relying on this is that as time goes by, the float will increase, I believe, because we are getting older. Simple as that. Any comments on that, Brent? Yeah, I when I look at some of these pop counts, I actually assume that half of these vintage cards have probably not even been graded. So, you know, <laughs> it can go either direction, but I agree with this. This is part of the reason why some of these cards have gone up in value in the last couple of years is the difference between rarity and scarcity. So a card can be rare, but not be scarce, you know, like say a, a Giannis prism to 10 that keeps popping up multiple times over the last year or two. And then you got a, you could have a PSA five Ruth that has a pop count of 300 and it could be more scarce. So there is a difference between rarity and scarcity. And I, I do agree that, that some of that scarcity is probably what's driven some of these prices up. AB says there's always risk. I think that's really important for us. There's always risk. There's always volatility. There's always cycles. There's all, there's external impacts on the hobby, obviously like the general economy, government policy, uh, world world matters like war. I mean, any, you know, pandemics, there's always risks that we might not always be thinking about. Something to, to keep in mind. Justin Wickeiser, need more people like Brent in the Hobby. Great show. Good night. Thank you, Justin, for tuning in. TDOS says, more money pushed the demand to new level. I think I think that's something as did downtime as did downtime. And now we're getting back out of that. So that's why, that's why we saw the up and we, and that's why we've come back down and then comes back to the earlier comment is the floor now higher than it was in 2019 pre pandemic. I don't know. I used to, I, you could go back on these shows and I've said a hundred times, I think the floor is higher than it was before. I still do. Cause we're still there. And I'd be really surprised if we went down to, to sub 2019 levels, but Things happen in the world. Things happen. So I, I, I'm not married to that uh, theory anymore. Uh, Valentina says, as long as there are sports, there will be cards. And as long as there are people, there will be collectors. If I can uh, add that addendum on to your quote there, Valentina. Thank you for the for the comment. Mike Petty says, wish you were on, Matt. You are the only one that can disagree with one of Jeremy's guests without getting a strong reprimand. You can disagree, but please do not disrespect my guests. Our guests, everybody. AB says, big fan of Brent here. I wish he would do more interviews or podcasts. I think you can count on the fact that he likely will, uh, especially from this point forward. Carlo says, uh, 
hockey is such a micro market that not enough Prito going on. Marvel Golf and WWF cards are more popular than hockey. I got to dispute that. I mean, Marvel maybe, but golf and WWF, there's no way they're more popular. Uh, maybe on a card-by-card -card level, uh, like, but but there's just way more hockey cards ever produced, like like a thousand times, if not more, than golf and WWF. I think you're way off on that one, uh, Carlos. Larry, uh, we did that comment by Larry. Bobby Burrell says, nostalgia has more hobby value than money can buy. Uh, Brent, I want to get your comments on that sentiment because this, this discussion, your theory, your approach is, is really a lot about, and it, it's gone this way because you saw that first chart back uh, uh, you know, 18 months ago. But I want you to address this comment to just so that you can reconcile a little bit more the fact that people want to collect and not everyone's going to be able to afford the Pareto. So speak to that a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, I, I think it's about expectations, right? So it's about what where I get concerned is somebody, say, you know, buys the PSA 2 Gaudi, Babe Ruth, and they're looking at these headlines of the, the 52 tops mantle, you know, SGC 9.5 selling for 12 million or 13 million. And they think like, oh, God, this could be the next great card or whatever the case is. To me, it's all about expectations. So as long as that you're aware that those are different situations and those are different cards and, you know, collect what you like and nostalgia does drive markets. Um, you know, I, I love cars and, you know, all the late nineties cars, you know, 98 M3, 99 M3, Integra type R's, S 2000s. I'm, I'm loving all of those cars and I'm, I'm seeing all their values go up. So I believe nostalgia plays a big, big aspect in it. Um, and it's a good comment. All right. Well, thank you for replying to that one. Uh, Dennis Zender says, hot take. Mike, losing investment over time. I would exit his market altogether. And then I'm going to pair this comment for you because I want your response to this one, Brent. But I'm going to pair it here with, uh, with Matthew's comment. I want to hear how Brent compares the investment potential of a PSA 2 Gaudi Babe Ruth, whichever version you want, to a 2009 PSA 10 Bowman Chrome Mike Trout. So the, this is a great comparison. And I think this is a, a big, you know, um, shift in the market. So the, the PSA 2 Gaudi Ruth, the only thing that differentiates it from another card is grade. That's it, right? So the only way you could have a rarer Gaudi is by having a higher grade. Grade is the only thing that makes it rare or scarce, nothing else because the card is actually not rare or scarce versus a Mike Trout, the 2009 Trout, there's a blue to 150, there's a gold to 50, there's an orange to 25, there's a red to uh, five, and there's a super fractor. So one of the things I actually think about in these markets is there's three PSA 1052 mantles. I almost imagine that being like a red, a red to five, right? Um, because that's how I differentiate these markets. So within that trout, if, if he's talking about a base Bowman Chrome Mike Trout auto, um, I would not think that that's a good investment because that's not in the Pareto of the Mike Trout cards. If you truly want a rare and scarce Pareto, you know, uh, Mike Trout Bowman Chrome, you got to be in a Bowman Chrome gold or higher. You know, that's numbered to 50 and then you got the orange to 25. So even within that Mike Trout population, the Pareto takes place. It's just different now with more modern cards because you have 
numbered, better quality, uh, more rare and more scarce cards of that card. Versus the the Ruth, the only thing that will make a Ruth rare or scarce is the grade. That's not the case with the Trout. The Trout is numbered, so it's it's a little bit different. But I, I still think of them similar. I think, like I said, I think of a PSA 10 mantle is almost like the th- same as a modern day red to five. So Matt, when you when you mentioned the only thing that that separates, uh, you know, that you could approve upon in a PSA two is, is the grade. He says, nope, I appeal. But I have a feeling that you kind of consider that one and the same. Or are you strictly talking about the grade and the the the, the number on the label? Look, graders are supposed to do their job. So, you know, this whole eye appeal thing and it only being about centering, which is most of the time what people talk about. I I just assume that grading companies should be grading these cards um, based on the eye appeal, based on the centering, based on the registration of the card. Like I I make that assumption and what I'm talking about. I I don't want to get in the weeds about whether a two should be a four or four should be a six. Um, That, you know, that kind of thing is... That's that's another game within the hobby that I I see it and I understand it. It makes sense, um, but that's not really what I'm talking about. Okay, no, I, I think I think that's a, a fair response, and uh, and I I don't want to I don't want to get into the weeds, and and I I think like for Matt and anyone everyone listening watching, when we're taught when when we're talking about what how you can get a scarcer rarer 33 Gaudi Babe Ruth, it's not only going to be by going up the grading scale, it's also going to be by going up the I appeal scale and, and, you know, I appeal, you know, grading, grading, grading companies do not grade on I appeal. They grade on technical standards and then I appeal might get you that extra half point bump. So it's there. They, to say that, you know, I expect them to do their job and do it that way. You really have to understand the standards to know that. And, and if you, if you or anyone don't, doesn't know that really important to understand those nuances. And this is how you can move, up the savvy scale in collecting and investing in cards. And really maybe instead of buying a seven, cause it's the, it's in the Pareto of whatever card and player and the best you can afford. If it's an unattractive seven, you may be better off buying a really nice five that could in, in many auctions outsell that week seven. So just something to, to keep in mind, to add to your arsenal, Brent, uh, if you think it's worthy. Yeah, I would, I would actually defer to you for some of that. That's why I love watching some of the shows with you where you actually zoom in, you sh- you show the card, you show the corners, you show the edges, you give your perspective um, around the eye appeal. I, I think about it like this. So like if like the 52 mantle, I use that as an example because it's an easy one. You know, the Pareto would point to the PSA nines and higher. So, you know, like whether I want to argue with somebody about whether a four should be a five or a five should be six, you know, that, that, that's different, but um, you know, it'd be in the nine or higher would be the ones that are the most rare and scarce anyway. So I'd assume that the PSA nines are, have pretty nice high eye appeal. Yeah. Well, fair comment for the most part. I hope they do or they should, <laughs> they should, but there are some, there's a Pareto within those nine. There's an eye appeal yeah. Pareto within those nines. I and agree with that. Not all nines are created equal because of the technical requirements to be a nine. So, um, okay, back to uh, to here. A vintage card collector says, Brent, are you concerned about long-term value in vintage baseball with overall interest in the sport continuing to decline? No, not at all. Um, you know, I it's, it's funny. The same people that say baseball's dying are buying Mickey Mantle and posting pictures of the Willie Mays and 
um, you know, all the vintage players as if that's not the same sport. <laughs> and so um, I, I believe that things are cyclical and, you know, baseball, basketball, football, I think those three for me, those, those are the three that I collect. Um, I, I'm not concerned about baseball, you know, dying or going away, especially when I see, you know, Jackie Robinson, Hank Aaron, these, these uh, legends you continuously notice are all baseball. So I, I don't see that going away. Uh, the professor says scarcity and rarity being decoupled is a solid point similar to prevalence decoupled from causality. Very nice comment from the professor. Vintage card collector. Brent, any thoughts on the value of non-sport, especially vintage non-sport? So that there's, I have, I think of three different categories of non-sport, Brent, just to help contextualize. I think of Hollywood, I think of music, and I think of historical figures. Um, and then, of course, there's sci-fi. There's the spider. Actually, I bought a, I bought, guys, can I show you guys a card I bought today at the local? I'm going to, I'm going to show you. I bought this today. And, uh, I think it's. I, I couldn't understand why it was graded so low. I'm sure it's it's technically accurate, but I'm just going to highlight myself, Brent, for a second and show this card today. Non-sport pickup, everybody, it, to the Jeremy Lee personal collection today. Robin from 1966, Batman: The Black Bat series. This is graded a VGX four by PSA. It's also the Canada version, and if I, I look at the pop, it's a pop six with like twelve higher. Something really small. I have a Batman already that's the US version, but I got this to pair up today. And I just, it's a beautiful copy in a four. I'm like, this is where I'm like, you know what? I don't need this in an eight to pay eight money. I'll buy this. I'll buy this as a, as a four. And it's a beautiful copy. Anyway, I'm just very excited. I'm glad I got to, got to share that with everybody here today. But over to you, Brent, on the comment. So I don't collect in that space, but I would just say you can use all of the principles we've talked about tonight in that space and in any space. So just remember everything that we've talked about tonight around the Pareto, around the collections, around the sets, like which cards, which actors or actresses or which characters, there's a Pareto within the characters within these sets. So just, you can apply this to anything. That's what makes it so fun. If you can apply it to art, you can apply it to any kind of cards. True, true. Mookie says card number two. So the Pareto would be Batman card number one. But I'm like, yep. Batman, you, it's so hard to say Batman without saying Batman and Robin, especially if you grew up watching those cartoons and that or those even earlier in the 60s and 70s. Uh, Matt, great color on that card. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I'm very happy with that card. Latrell Sprewell here says, I plan to take my PMG to my grave, which I, I, I listen, I understand the sentiment, but I don't understand the plan, the purpose, like unless you have no next of kin, no godchildren, <coughs> no nieces or nephews, no best friends, kids, why would you take these things to your grave? You know, like turn them into money because when you're dead, you never knew you had them in the first place. So, and I know it's just kind of a, a just a way of saying it, but um, but those are those are the the sorts of things that people say when the market hasn't been hit at all and whatever they're speaking to. So, you know, when I first got back into collecting, it was all Tom Brady. Uh, you know, I'm locking it away. You know, this is going into a safe. Everybody should have a Tom Brady. You know, it was all that same talk. And I I remember looking at the charts and the Tom Brady cards. And I remember looking at like the actual market around Tom Brady. And I just stayed away. And all Tom Brady's done has gone down since then. 
Um, so when I hear lock away, I'm, I'm going to my grave. No offense to the commenter or anybody that says that, but it's easy to say that when your market is doing really well. When the PMG market struggles, and it will, like all markets do, let's see if you're still wanting to take this card to the grave if it drops 70% in value. Then I would like to hear those comments because every market will go up and down and the PMG market will get hit. So that's the reality. All right. A couple comments uh, that came in on the Robin card. First of all, vintage. Love it. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Uh, Mookie saying Joker is more valuable than Robin, actually speaking. And Larry says getting Robin is like getting a Hank Bauer versus a Mickey Mantle. Well, I'm just going to say now that I've hyped the heck out of this card here on Sports Cards Live, this is now the second most valuable card in the set. You heard it here first. Uh, just kidding. I just love the card and I'm happy to pair it with my Batman, but I might pick up a Joker too. Uh, vintage card collector. We just did that one. Perk says the highest possible popularity of a player. So the highest possible popular player plus their highest in demand card in the highest possible grade is, does that equal the best possible return on investment over time? Brent. Yes. So I, I want to really make sure that there, this point is really understood around because somebody made a comment on my post today and said, you know, Tom Brady rookie cards are undervalued. And I said, well, you, we have to be careful that we don't say such a broad statement like that because not all Tom Brady rookie cards are undervalued and not all Tom Brady rookie cards will have value over time. We have to be very specific around which Tom Brady cards are we talking about? And I clarified and I said, the most rare and scarce Tom Brady rookie cards over time will have value. But say, you know, you take a, a Bowman Chrome Tom Brady that's got a high population count. I, I don't know that that's undervalued. You know, that might continually go down in value as the more rare and scarce Tom Brady cards go up in value. Um, so this comment is making th the same point where it's, it's not just finding the best player, it's finding the best card within the best player. Um, those are going to be the cards regardless that will have the best investment potential over time. What about Tom Newman's uh, comment here? Tom Brady is the best investment in the whole market. See, that, that's too vague. Um, if you just say Tom Brady, well, what Tom Brady card are you talking about specifically? Because that's important because Tom Brady isn't like Mickey Mantle where there's just one set, one card to chase after and one grade. We now have to, we have to look at, you know, I saw a really awesome leaf gold that was numbered to 25, I believe, mirror gold. And that was the coolest card I'd seen in a long time of Tom Brady. It's not even talked about. Um, then you got your championship ticket, which is the 100. You got multiple Tom Brady cards to look at here. So within that championship ticket, there's a Pareto within that championship ticket. Because the, because the card's numbered to 100, that's probably too many, actually. So now we got to look at, well, is it the nine or higher? Which ones still have nice autos? You got you to gotta be very specific. The Tom Brady market might be a terrible investment right now. It could be terrible as a whole. Okay. Uh, Larry says, of course, breaking the top cards out of sets will be more valuable, but those that do set registries love the chase of completing the set. Where is the fun in buying a complete set? Yeah, that's the thing. And so when it comes time to dispose of that set, Larry, who's going to buy that complete set? Now you're going to sell them off one at a time and they're, and you're, unless you just don't care, but if you don't want to lose money when you do your set break after holding it for 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, 
hope you you're banking on the, the the hope that there are enough people still collecting those sets to help you not lose money. And I don't want to say make money, but just help you at least at, at worst break even and at least break even and, and keeping up with inflation. But I, I certainly understand the love of set collecting, although I've stopped and become very choosy in which sets I will collect when I am buying a, a set of cards or I'm collecting a set with 80 or 150 cards. And I know I'm going to be picking up cards of common players and I might pay 30, 40, 50 bucks a card now because it's a, it's a, it's a new set player collectors are going for it. When I also know that in two or three years, that same card is going to be 10 or 15 or $20. Uh, but I don't care because I'm doing it for the love of it. So you have to, I think, just balance it out. You know what I used to do, Brent? Back when I used to open up a lot of wax, I would say, if I'm going to spend $100 on wax, I'm also going to be disciplined. I'm going to spend $100 on a single card that I think is going to, number one, I'm going to love it in my collection. Number two, I think is going to be able to do well value-wise. So balance things out a little bit. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, I, I would say. And I know it doesn't necessarily apply to set collecting. Uh, Matt, if you're still here, thanks for stopping by. Says, gonna have a beer and invest in some low grade vintage. <laughs> and he's a very passionate collector and a good friend of mine. Uh, the professor says, Does Brent agree with the idea that a PSA 8 modern card is equal to a raw version of that same card? This, this is something we haven't really talked much about tonight is grading and, you know, the card versus the plastic that it's in. Um, Instead of answering just this question, what I will talk about is, you know, one of the posts that I got a lot of pushback on was believing that somebody was significantly overpaying. Speaking of Mike Trout for 2009 Bowman Chrome uh, BGS 10 Black Label. So this card is numbered out of 225. It's a BGS 10 Black Label. Great. But this isn't a 52 tops mantle where there's only one card. There's a blue to 150 that's lower numbered, that's more rare and scarce. There's a gold to 50, there's an orange to 25. So in these type of modern cards where you can get a better, more rare, more scarce version of that card, I will always do that over the grade. So somebody paid $120,000, for example, for this X-Fractor Mike Trout number to 225 because it's a BGS 10, when the gold to 50 sold for 90,000. So you could have bought a gold to 50 and a 9.5 BGS 9.5 and a blue BGS 9.5 to 150 for the combined price of what somebody paid for a BGS 10 black label X fractor to 225, if that makes sense. So you could have leveled up significantly in the rarity and the scarcity of the Mike Trout first Bowmanado to a gold to 50 at a, and it's still a mint gem mint card and had $30,000 to spare over this person has a BGS 10 black label X fractor. And so to me, that's, they're buying the plastic. So, um, you know, PSA eight modern, you know, that's too vague of a question for me. Um, I, I focus more on the card specifically and whether it's a PSA eight or not, it just depends on the card. What about the cliche that goes as follows Buy the best you can afford. So paying up, paying that, and this isn't this this comment doesn't exactly follow what you were just saying, but if you can work it in anyway, and just the premium that people will pay for that black label BGS over their regular pristine ten, and the 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 premium they will pay for a pristine ten BGS over a PSA ten gem mint, and so yeah. forth down the line. 
Uh, buy the buy the best you can afford is what people like to they say it in terms of all sorts of areas of collecting and and well collecting I'll say. Yeah, well, you know, it's I just always look at if someone's buying that card, then I look at well, what's the best card you can get for that money? So we talked about the Tiger Woods rookie card, you know, the SP authentic number to 900. Somebody will pay for a PSA 10 for that card, but you could get the gold number to 100 and a BGS 95 for the same price. So if you're going to spend, you know, the $30,000 or whatever it is on that Tiger Woods auto and a PSA 10 for the 900, if I'm your card advisor, I'm calling you up and saying, hey, man, you can get a BGS 95 gold to 100 for the same price. Just like with that, you know, BGS 10 pristine Mike Trout X Fractor, I'm calling them up saying, hey, you could get five or six PSA 9 blues for that same price that are more rare, more scarce and better cards. So it's it's not about the grading company. It's not about the plastic. It's just if you have a lump sum and you're buying a card, my goal is to find the best card I can get with that lump sum. And I'm not going to let the, the grade dictate that for me. I'm going to let the card dictate that. So I'll take a PSA 8 gold to 50 all day over a PSA 9 or 10 in a base, for example. You know, like I'm just not going to let that... The BGS 10, when I see a BGS 10, somebody posted two BGS 10 um, LeBron James Topps Chrome rookies, refractors, BGS 10s. And I looked at the pricing on them and I thought to myself, you could get two BGS 95 X fractors numbered to 225 for that same price. Right. So like you could level up the card if you're because Jeremy, at some point, like these are mint cards. How mints do they need to be? Like, you know what I mean? It's like I, I sold a, a PSA 10 blue Manny Machado first Bowman Auto. And I was able to take that money and buy a, a BGS 95 gold first Bowman Auto of Manny Machado to 50. Right. And if we were opening wax back then, like it would be like you trying to tell me that you're blue under a microscope. The corners look better and ask me to trade for my gold. And I would say, hell no. It's like at some point these are mint cards. And if I can level up the card, you know, I'll do that over the grade. So start with the card. Even even uh, a, a six on the PSA Beckett grading scale, even a six has the word mint in it. It's an X mint, I believe. Uh, a PSS six. So they're all they're all minty. Yeah. Whichever way you look at it. Um, <clears throat> but for okay. vintage guys and for older cards, where grading is the only way to differentiate, it becomes way more important. But if you're telling me I got a, a parallel that's better that I can get of that card, I'm going to do that. You know, there's no parallel of a, a vintage mantle or maze or Babe Ruth. Right. Uh, T. Jones says markets are rational. And I really have to question that because I think I think that's a common economic uh, you know theory. But I don't think markets are rational at all. I don't even think stock markets are rational because the retail investor doesn't know what's going on in the company. Like you have no control, nor do you know what's going on. And sure, you can read their financial statements, but you don't know what the accounting policies are doing. You don't know how their revenue is recognized. You don't know how they're running their expenses. So you don't know their depreciation policies and amortization and how that's impacting net income. I mean, all of these things are, you know, very hard to understand for the, at the retail level. And yet the retail investor you know, runs a lot of what those markets do on, on a daily basis. So I don't, and again, I'm talking about the stock market here. I don't, 
I don't think it's all that rational. It, it, the, the market reacts on news sometimes before it even comes out or, you know, insider information. I don't, and, and how rational is that? Talk about a, what have you done for me lately market? Now this might be unpopular, but the stock market, I don't think is rational. Uh, I just don't, I just don't think it is. And I, I'm, I'm a, someone, I think Leighton was saying his father's a CPA. I'm, I'm a CPA as well. I've, I understand how financial statements work and I understand how much management bias goes in to financial statement presentation. And, but management bias doesn't mean that it's, it's not within the standards, but the standards can be loose in places. And if you don't understand them, how can you behave rationally in that market? Unless you're listening to your advisor or you're following the institutional investors who are likely much more sophisticated, but even they have bias. So I don't know how, how, how rational the market is. And that's the stock market. The sports card market, I think we can say, is very irrational as well. Uh, do you want to say anything about that, Brent? No. Mark Santucci, will Joe Montana always have value for his rookie card? Because he doesn't have any other card. And he's got very few, like, 90s, you know, low print run, high, high uh, demand inserts. What do you think about Joe Montana? Yeah, Joe Montana is in the Pareto. He's one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. So that puts him in the Pareto. The, the question would be then which card? And if you're talking true rarity and scarcity, that puts you in his rookie in a PSA 10, which I think has a pop count of, you know, 50, 60, 70, something like that. Um, you know, once you get down to a PSA 9, now you're talking pop count in the thousands. So that's fine. It's a cool card. I love, I've had a couple Joe Montana PSA nines. It really brings me back, but I'm talking about expectations from an investment perspective. Just know that that PSA 10 or whatever, you know, consolidation that will happen. That's in a higher grade than the PSA nine will continue to suck up all the value over time. And, and, you know, if you were to put money into it, a Joe Montana 10 versus a nine, and the market goes up on, on Joe Montana, you're going to make more absolute dollars on the 10 than you would the nine. Of course, it's going to cost you more to get into it, which brings me to this comment here from Chris J that came up about nine minutes ago. He says, I get your point, but no one can afford any of these cars. Even if, how many people can afford a PSA 10 Joe Montana for 50, 60 K? He goes, you're talking about the best of the best. So I know we've kind of addressed this. If you don't, I'll give you another chance though, Brent, to kind of speak to the fact that in the Pareto and the Pareto of the Pareto of the Pareto, not everybody can afford them. So there's always going to be people because according to the Pareto principle, 80% or even way more can't afford these cards and they're still going to want to collect. So there's always yeah. going to be some, some demand, which will lead to some value for the lower grade cards because down that Pareto chain, there's always going to be people collecting the Pareto players. Right. It, it, as long as, you know, like the Joe Montana, I'll take the PSA nine as a great example. You're now at least in a Pareto player and you're in one of their higher end cards. Right. Um, and I believe that card will have value and will continue to have value because it has value now. And it's it's already stood the test of time. Um, it's to me, again, it's just more of an expectation thing. and It's an economics thing to just understand and be aware that it will always be capped by that PSA 10 and that PSA 10, you know, or if there's a BGS 10 or whatever it is, will over time continuously suck up the value. Um, but I, 
I love that card. I think it's a great card to buy. I think it's got a lot of value. Um, I've owned it a couple of times. So it, it, it's, it's an interesting thing because we could be talking about multiple different things here where buying a PSA 9 Joe Montana could be a great card to buy, hell of an enjoyable card to buy. I, you know, just looking at it brings me, you know, back. I love it. But on an investment perspective, long-term, just set your expectations and know, okay, and this, this stuff actually might help people enjoy their cards more because I think sometimes people need their expectations leveled a little bit. Um, you know, when you're buying that PSA eight, you know, Joe Montana for 300 bucks and you think like it's going to be worth a million dollars something, just, this actually could help people enjoy it more. Just, it's all just about expectations. When you buy it, just, just understand what it is. It, your expectations being shifted will also change probably what you buy. Because if you're, if you're level with your expectations and you're more rational and you have a better understanding, you know, do you still want that PSA nine Joe Montana or eight? Like, do you really? Cause that will actually be a good test to know if you really want it. All right. No, great comment. Uh, Chris C. Thank you both for the chat. Making me hungry for a burrito. <laughs> Let's throw a little bit of comedic yeah, interlude. Yeah. A little comedic interlude. Uh, right there. Michael Stone, wouldn't the card with only five pristine 10s be rarer than a modern card numbered to 150? So back to what we were saying earlier that you want the card out of 50, not the one, not the higher grade out of, you know, with however many. Yeah. So, you know, PWCC, this is like all my comments too, there are no digs against any of these companies, but you know, they're advertising this as the only BGS 10 pristine black label, Mike Trout, first Bowman auto, right? That's fine, but the card's numbered out of 225. So, you know, how mint do you need it to be when you can get a blue out of 150, which is more rare and scarce. You can get a gold out of 50, which is more rare and scarce. So again, to me, you know, the grading only matters as much as they, there are you know, parallels and more rare scarcity cards above it. So a mantle and a maze and a Ruth and these cards, you can only get better grades and that's your only option. I'm taking a card like a gold over an X fractor any day, numbered to 50 versus 225. I don't care what the grade is. Give me yeah. a PSA six. And a you're gold right. I think you're right on that because at the end of the day, we need collectors to house these cards in their collections and the collectors are going to want the rarest card, not the highest not the card of the highest grade. So while I understand Michael Stone's comment here, but I'm with you that, and I know this because I, 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 I run around with a lot with some of these collectors and they don't, they don't want the common card in the highest grade. They want the rare card in any grade they can get it in. And that's, yeah. I think a really important thing for people to understand. Uh, and you don't see a lot of that. Well, there's some follow, you know, MK sports cards on Instagram the guy lives by that by that rule in his collecting. If you're not following MK, I'm sure you are, Brent. Yeah. Uh, he 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 kind of exemplifies that, and he's he's certainly not alone uh, in that. I can show you an example. It's like here's a, a Manny Machado red to five first Bowman Auto, BGS nine. I it could be a BGS eight seven. It really doesn't matter to me. It's numbered to five. There's none even graded higher than this, but it. I wanted the five Manny Machado because I know if I'm going to collect a Manny Machado, 
I want the very best card that there is out there. I don't really care which grade it is. I, I wouldn't take a PSA 10 and a blue or gold over it, you know, or, or a BGS 10, you know, I, I want the red. Well, here's a Filmington is a, a hardcore baseball collector and, a, and a, a data guy. He says some cards are special enough already because of their rarity where the grade doesn't and shouldn't have much of an incremental impact on value. 100% agree with this. This this speaks to what I was just saying, also to what you're saying. And it's why if you have, I'm going to use PMGs here because they are, they PMGs and at least basketball have been very popular since they came out. So just to state that, but I believe that a PSA six of, I don't know, Shaquille O'Neal will sell for the same uh, as a PSA eight of a Shaquille O'Neal because you buy it when you see it. You don't wait for the better grade because these things do not show up. And I could have said Scotty Pippen or Dennis Rodman or Kobe Bryant. I'm leaving Michael Jordan out of it because he's just, he's Michael Jordan. But I mean, that is exactly true. What Filmington is saying here, what you're, I, I think it's a, I think it is the savvy approach if you understand this and not just go for a card because the, 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 the black label population is five. I, I think that that's, mm -hmm. Um, I just don't think it's savvy. <laughs> I'll leave, I'll leave it at that. Uh, the professor here wants to know what does Brent think of fractional ownership of high value Pareto cards? So I, that is the part of fractional ownership that I really did like. So I did like that they were tapping into that ability to get into the most rare and scarce cards that you wouldn't be able to on your own, because those are the cards that will have all the value down the road. So it was a great way to do that. So that fractional ownership is interesting because it does support the Pareto principle. It does support investing in that way. The problem with fractional is there was no liquidity. You like you just couldn't get in and out of the card at all, ever. So you didn't own it. You had no liquidity. And, you know, it just sat there. And so for a tangible, collectible asset that people like to hold and touch and look at, or be able to move in and out of as a, an, if you want to look at it as an investment, you'd expect to be able to move in and out of it. It didn't provide either of those. So couldn't touch it, couldn't hold it, couldn't own it, and you couldn't get liquidity. So that was the tough part. But I do really like the idea of fractional for the Pareto because, you know, if 30 years ago you could have got into a Mickey Mantle PSA 10, that would have been better than any other Mickey Mantle you could have got into with your own cash at that time. Say you're not rich, you know? Um, I, I wasn't Marshall Fogel in the nineties with 150 K. Uh, but if that could have got you into a PSA 10 mantle at that time, now looking back, that would have been the best, best investment opportunity. It's just, you know, it suffers in the other areas. Yeah. I think the Mar, I think uh, fractional was a little bit ahead of its time and, it, or maybe not. I mean, it just, the liquidity is what, and I did, I was doing a show for collectible. One of the, you know, I don't think, I don't know if they're still around actually, but uh, you know, it was just too early or maybe it'll never take off. Maybe the liquidity would never come, but I thought it yeah. made sense. I, I spent, I spent a lot of my career working in fractional real estate and uh, it always made sense to me, but uh, I guess not for the hobby. Um, okay. A uh, couple more comments and I have one. I still want to get to Mr. T says, are one of ones worth grading or just for authentication purposes? I mean, I think they are. If you like your cards graded, why would you not grade your one of ones, but everything else that doesn't make sense to me. There's a graded uh, super factor right there, one of one that Brent is here. Hold on, Brent. I can I, I I just found this new tool right here where I can 
I can actually uh, bring up just the guests. So the Francisco Lindor, one of one, PSA nine, but it could be a seven or a six or a five. It wouldn't matter. But I do like that it's been authenticated and in the slab. Um, that's the part I like, and that's probably why people got into grading to begin with was for authenticating their cards. Um, I just think that when we become more concerned about the plastic that the card is in than the card, then that becomes a problem. Um, because yeah. you know, authenticating and knowing what you were buying remotely, you know, sight unseen. Yeah. Right? It's still, if you're going to sell that card, I'd still like to know what I was getting. So mm-hmm. why wouldn't why wouldn't I want the seller to have it graded if I'm going to buy it like remotely? I think that oh, grading is uh, probably single handedly been the biggest reason for the boom in the hobby as, as far as giving people the ability to transact online. What about, I mean, the I, inter- what, what about the advent of the internet and the global economy? You think those are kind of tied or? or- <laughs> they're, I mean, they're all tied, but I mean, I just could not imagine every card I have is graded and it's because I can get access to, you know, these cards from all over the world. And I don't have, like, I would, I don't know what I would do if they weren't graded because then I'd have to become, you know, an eye appeal expert and probably fly to see it in person. And, you know, that would just really slow things down. So I like that. Thank you, Yankees fan. Thank you for tuning in. We had a question here. Uh, Mark Santucci says, what would you rather have, Brent? A 1960 Clemente, which is not his rookie card, in a six, or a 1988 Mattingly, not his rookie card, in a 10? Um, I don't know if you even know what these cards, you know. Yeah, neither. (laughs) Yeah, neither. That's what I figured. Um, Okay. And then I wanted to ask you this. Maybe to wrap up, we just hit... We just hit the two-hour mark, so I have got to. I've actually at this point, I've got to throw up the uh, the overtime banner right now. We are overtime once we get to two hours, Brent. Uh, what I think is going to be my final question to you is: What are your thoughts around some social media narrative that sports cards are not investments? Mm. Well, I think it's important to define what an investment is. Right. So once you define what an investment is, you have the ability to say whether you think something's an investment. So, you know, I, I remember somebody used a couch <laughs> as, you know, saying like, if oh. you know, if my couch is an investment. Well, actually, you know, if you're into Charles and Ray Ames 50s furniture and you want to go out there and find, you know, rare and scarce, you know, mid-century modern furniture and buy it for the purpose of reselling it for more without consuming it, that is an investment. So anytime you buy something without the intent to consume, to sell at a future date for more money, it is an investment. So, um, you know, anything can be an investment. So saying sports cards are not an investment is short-sighted and narrow focused because if I buy a sports card, so here's something that I think that happens all the time is people confuse a terrible investment with whether it's an investment or not. So just because something goes down 90% in value doesn't mean it wasn't an investment when you purchased it. But real estate can do the same thing. Stocks can do the same thing. I watched Peloton stock. This a spin bike with an iPad go from $5 to five, you know, several hundred dollars a share now back to $5. That it was still an investment, whether you made a ton of money on it or lost a ton of money on it. So sports cards, if you buy them with the intent to sell at a future time for more money, it is an investment. Simple. Simple. Yeah. So Spooning Corner says it's not in the narrative. It's the truth. It's a hobby, not an investment. 
Spooning Corners, great comment, but if you added the two words that you should have, which would have been at the end, for me and me alone, or, and I only speak for myself because as, as Brent said, the comment, the, the truth of the matter, because that is Spooning Corners, the generality that, that we see on our screen right now is that is 100% and completely inaccurate and just bad advice because it's yeah. not, it's not the truth that it's a hobby. It can be a hobby. It is a hobby for a lot of people. It's a hobby within an industry. The hobby, the ho- the funny thing is that the hobby start has always been a business. Always. Back in the 1800s when cards were made to help sell baking soda. In the 19, 19, early 1900s, cards were made to help sell tobacco. Business. In the 1920s, chocolate bars and candy. Business. Then gum. Still business. And then the funny thing is in really in 1989, when Upper Deck came onto the scene, it became only about business for the companies. And they were serving the collector who think who call it a hobby. But as soon as really price guides came out in the mid 80s, almost every kid who had cards as a pure hobby now saw the money potential and saw that their cards were actually worth money. And there was a monthly price guide that would come out and tell them, you know what else has a regular price that guide that comes out? The stock market. Is that a hobby? No, it's a business. And I'm kind of being a little silly there. But when people say it's a hobby, not an investment, Ugh. that's a personal choice. And it really only applies to you and people who think that way. But it is not the truth, Spooning Corners. That's a very, very... Uh, will you go on to say here, should we stop calling it a hobby? No, absolutely not. The hobby is what we refer to it as. It's a hobby for me. It's a hobby for investing in sports cards itself can be a hobby. So why can't we call it a hobby? That's a, that is that's like one of the best points right there. Investing in sports cards can be a hobby, just like investing in stocks can be a hobby. Investing in cars, real estate, you name it can be a hobby. Um, to, to say one can't be the other is not sticking to the truth of the definition of what an investment is. Investment is just anything that you buy with intent to not consume and sell for more at a later date. Like to say what that can and can't be is not part of that definition. That definition doesn't say what that can and can't be. There's no list of things that that can be. It can be tomatoes. It doesn't matter what it is. So to say that, you know, silly. And listen, the other thing there is that if you do not see it this way and you spend sig- whatever significant t- money is to you on it, then I think you're being irresponsible because if you're taking money away from your, your core living expenses or ba- your basic needs or, you know, putting your whatever you want to buy good, buying better food for your children, whatever it might be, I think you're just being irresponsible if you do not. But if you're just spending your your pure like like the 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 top of your or the, whatever your top or bottom of your discretionary income on it yeah who cares right like uh foul five ball here says i agree with spooning corners i don't think you agree with him i think you have the same approach as him which is different because if you agree that that it's not a uh, an investment it's a hobby for everybody then you 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 got blinders on I think what, and I know Jeremy and great guy. I think what he's saying is that's how I also approach it. I completely have no issue with that. That makes a lot of sense to me mm-hmm. right there. 
Okay, a couple more comments, guys. We're going to wrap up. Chris H-O-J says, uh, as we call him, Chris Hoj, enjoyed it. Thank you for being here, Chris. Always good to see you. Uh, Chris C says, it's not just a hobby. It's been a business for years. Fact right there. Simple, simple fact. Uh, Mike says, fascinating discussion tonight, Jeremy and Brent. More to think about and if it will impact my collecting strategy. Fair comment. And thank you for being here tonight, Mike. Mr. T, depends on your motive and intention with the cards, which is up to everybody individually. Don't let anybody tell you that cards are not an investment or they cannot be an investment. That's up to you. And Brent said it well, define investment. If throwing out 10 grand on a card doesn't matter to you, like if that's your play money, then you don't have to worry about it. But mm -hmm. for most people, you're like, I always, whenever I spend over like 250, 300 bucks on a card, I, I that's, I don't know, that's some money. I don't want to just, I don't want to just like not have to think about it, but sometimes I will. But at five grand, oh yeah, you better believe I'm thinking about well, the future performance of that card. Yeah, it's really important in any discussion or any argument to define what it is you're arguing about or discussing, right? So I find that a lot of people get into arguments about things and I'm like, I don't even think they agree on the definition of what they're arguing about. Right. So, you know, it's like if you just define what investment is, it really makes the argument go away. So, you know, it can be just a hobby for you and it can be an investment for me and it can be both for me. So defining what it is that you're arguing about in life is really important. Well, and the other thing is that it's not one or the other. You can you can. You can decide and it might be different month to month, year to year, but maybe, you know, maybe this year when I look back, my sports card expenditures were 80% investment, 20 hobby or 10 hobby, 90 or 10 investment, 90 hobby. It's going to be different because some cards I buy for the pure love and I don't care if they go to zero genuinely. And some cards, I would be very sad from a financial perspective that because I spent significant money on them if they went to zero or went yeah. down a lot. So yeah, Carlos B. Good says buying high-end sports cars and watches is a hobby too, but they are also investments. Mm -hmm. uh, the professor says Brent is bringing analytical thought to this hobby investment. Thank you. Very nice comment, professor. And same to you, Carlos, earlier. Thank you, Michael Stone. Trevor Coulter, who is Bob Rovsky's biggest fan, says Vasi Vasilevsky is in the 20% in the NHL goalie Pareto. I'd actually say he's higher than that, Trevor. Uh, all my bad takes on Vasilevsky have all been uh, tongue in cheek this uh, this postseason. And some people are, take me very, very seriously, but that's okay. Mr. T says entertainment budget equals hobby. Wanting money back from your cards at some point equals investment. Fair. That's one way to look at it, I think. Agree, Brent? Sure. Sure. Chris C says when I put money down on a 96 Chrome Kobe with no greening, it was a PC card, not a card I expect 2x value from that's up to you 100 up to you t2 shen says it's all about lying to yourself if your investment tanks 90 percent, then it was just a hobby and hey whatever whatever you got to do to to go to bed at night i mean you can you can look back and and fool yourself all you want or it becomes a side pc that's right that's, that's the term but, yeah but brent said before like just you you said this exact thing. You said when cards go down in value, you don't or whatever holding goes down, you don't want to think of an investment as an mm -hmm. investment. But it was it was just a negative return investment, which happens as well. Okay, Brent. Um, 
Are you going to be at the National uh, in July? Yeah, my plan is to be there. Absolutely. Right on. Well, we've never met in person, uh, but uh, look forward to seeing. I'll be there all five days, so I'm sure we'll run into each other. But uh, if not, I will be headquartered at the TAG grading booth, so be sure to come by and say hi to me uh, there. I want to thank uh, Center Stage App. I want to thank Veriswap. I want to thank Tag Grading, Leighton Sheldon, um, everyone uh, that supports the show, the, the the chat, the viewers, the podcast listeners, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And always, if you are new to the, if Brent brought you here, and I want to thank you, Brent, for sharing that you were coming on with your uh, followers on Instagram and Twitter. If you're new, please throw a subscribe at Sports Cards Live. And uh, Brent, final comment over to you. Yeah, Jeremy, I really appreciate being on. I think that this industry slash hobby is really lucky to have somebody like you that is so professional, that's so thoughtful and prepared. Um, you know, being a guest on your show really did feel like an honor, man. So I, I'm, I'm thankful that you're here. I look forward to you continuing to have bigger things. And you are in the Pareto. Just know that man. it's it's going to continue to consolidate to you more and more and more with time. So I appreciate that. And I, I appreciate being on the show. Well, man, it's, it's been a pleasure. This has been a really fun discussion. We've had some controversy. We've had some pushback and uh, want to thank Leighton for coming on. What, what I, I thought this was a great, a great show. If you don't have to agree with Brent, you don't have to agree with me guys and girls, but open your mind to other ways of thinking. And some of this, you might've picked up a one, even one small nugget tonight. And I hope you did. But with that, everybody, um, thank you for joining. Keep your eyes on the channel. I'll be back very soon. As always, this episode of Sports Cards Live is now over. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.